Oddities, Late Night Movies with Rob, Ben, and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as, as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben. And I want to get well. Will you wait for me? Ben, will you wait for me? Um, that depends. Are you a 12-year-old child? Uh, uh, right now or um, in the future? Because <laughs> I'm 11. <laughs> I, I also want to throw out a very special notion. I really wanted... Uh, there's another quote in this movie that I think is um, very apt for the start of this episode. I had to do that one because uh, this movie gives me the big sad, everybody. I cry a lot during this movie. and I'm probably going to cry during this episode. Um, but another quote I wanted to mention was, um, I think the problem here is much more complicated and deeper than we thought but i figured that shouldn't be at the start of this episode because ben we're here to talk about animation and we're not here to talk about the problems and complications of animation we're here to lift it up so i figured that one just gets an honorable mention Does that makes sense <laughs> uh yeah fair enough well I, I don't know i guess i'll let you start with the animation from this particular uh creator because i while i have seen some of his uh material i think maybe you're more familiar with it than i am ah uh, yes oh god i mean um Ben and I did very little preamble and uh, you know before we started recording for this episode, but I think you just read my goddamn mind, Ben. Um, I think I also knew it because I'm pretty sure last week's episode you called Hayao Miyazaki mayonnaise Heinz a few times or something like that. Um, <laughs> so, that so sounds right. Okay, that's, that's yes. His name. <laughs> mayonnaise Heinz, the Japanese creator, mayonnaise Heinz, of course. <laughs> Oh god, that actually reminds me. I actually I saw like so Heinz has been making like mayo chub. Of course, like, I'm sure yes. you know. Like, then now they're making like a bunch of different sauces, like cranch. It's like ketchup yeah. and ranch. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and like I think I saw one that was like a buffalo sauce mixed with mayonnaise or something. And I was like, Heinz, what the fuck are you doing, man? Uh, I know I've seen sriracha. A sriracha oh, and ketchup yeah, mixture. Yeah. I've seen that one. Um, and, of course, I, I will never shy away from talking about this. The fantastic sketch of Mr. Show, which I know I've told you about before, Ben, where uh, halfway through the episode, or maybe the first third of the episode, they play a commercial for mayo stirred, which is a combination of mustard and mayonnaise. Love it. About a th- another third through the episode, they play a commercial for a different brand's version of it. So if the first one was mayo stirred, the next one is like mustard mayonnaise. And then at the end of the episode, the last thing they play is a combination of those two condiments, which is like mayo stirred mustard mayonnaise or something like that, you know? (laughs) And, And the best thing about it is that at the end of the first commercial of mayo stirred, they're like, you know, mayonnaise will expire before the mustard. And then in the other commercial, it says like, you know, mayonnaise will expire before the mustard. And in the last one, the rule of great rule of threes, they say something like mayo stirred will expire before mustard mayonnaise or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yes, we are here to talk about um, mayonnaise Heinz. No, we are here to talk about one of my favorite God, not only animators but creators in 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 my lifetime. I think you know it's it's great that he's still alive and tentatively still working. We're supposed to get another movie from him in 2023. Who knows if that's going to happen? Um, it's been you know 10 years since this movie we're talking about, but it's Hayao Miyazaki. And Ben, like I said, you read my yeah, mind. Exactly. I wanted to pick your brain on 
what you know about Hayao Miyazaki. And of course, whenever I bring up Hayao Miyazaki, I have to mention my third favorite piece of media of all time. Um, quite possibly, uh, not quite possibly, I would say definitely the second greatest animated film ever. Um, tune in at the end of this month when we talk about the greatest animated film ever, Spirited Away. Is that the one you're familiar with? I have seen that one. They actually, um, in Athens, they did a um, Mustard Hines, um, <laughs> like, viewing party. You know, the kind of, I, I think we went to see some of them, the, like, Fandango presents whatever oh, and the sure. tickets are like twice as expensive as normal tickets uh, of course yeah. um and they uh and they did the heinz uh m- mustard hayonaise um <laughs> animated movies from studio um from studio ghibli and i i did go and watch most of them because i had a lot of friends that that were into them and so i have i have seen them i think spirited away was like the one that i remember the most okay um but to to be honest and this is something uh, that I don't know. Maybe Rob doesn't know uh, the uh, mayonnaise Heinz Anaki. Uh, he's not. He's not my cup of tea. Really? Do you think it's too yeah. fantastical? Uh, yes, basically. Okay. Um, I like. Don't get me wrong. I think the art's beautiful, and I think the animation is really smooth and amazing. Um, but the the story uh, of them, I'm I'm just like. I guess there's. I feel like maybe there's a little bit too much emphasis on the beauty of the piece and for me and not enough emphasis on like the story. That's fair. That... That's fair. I, I think I figured it wouldn't be something we get into too much in this episode because we got it a lot in um, Ghost in the Shell. But I, I think Hayao Miyazaki's movies are very much more uh, distinctive of the fact that there are clear differences between uh, clear cultural differences between Japanese storytelling and American storytelling, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, definitely. Have you seen Howl's Moving Castle? Um, anytime I see castles moving, I call the cops. Oh, oh, jeez, okay. <laughs> Everybody be careful around Ben over here. God. No, I'm uh, just saying, like, if I see buildings move, like, that's normally bad stuff. Happens. Um, That's fair. That's that's actually understandable. Um, Mortal Engines is an atrocity that we should have called the cops on uh, back in 2018. <laughs> um, no, but, I, I mean, Howl's Moving Castle, I think, is the best example of that because there's a moment at the end of Howl's Moving Castle where a scarecrow kind of for no discernible reason turns into a human and they try and play like a princess and the frog type of thing like you know the 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 frog was a prince but turned back into a human but this scarecrow that just kind of had nothing to do with the story turns to a human and kind of deus ex machina saves the day and it does come across as very strange but from what i've read it has like a lot of cultural meaning in Japanese folklore, and okay. it's something that just does not translate to English audiences. And I do think a lot of Hayao Miyazaki's stuff, you know, maybe to use a better example, um, or one that Wait, you who, and I... Who's are, Hayao Miyazaki? Um, I, I, I kind of am upset <laughs> that, you know, we're seven minutes into this, and we have defiled the name of one of the greatest <laughs> animators to ever live, you know? <laughs> he would um, hate this podcast. Maybe to use a better example, though, is um, the end of Spirited Away. I know one of the things of Spirited Away, which is very well received throughout the world. Um, it's not like people, you know, if, if you're a dissenter on that movie, you are a strange person, you know, just by statistical standards. But the thing that everybody kind of latches onto is when Chihiro, or Sen, at the point in the movie before she gets her name back, um, is riding on the dragon, and she's like, I realize you're the Keikaku River, you're the river spirit that saved me, and it comes out of fucking nowhere. Um, a lot of people go like, 
American audiences, I say, go, what? Like, when did she get saved by a river? We didn't hear about this for the first 80 minutes of the movie. That type of thing. And it's it's very based in Japanese folklore. There's And there's a lot of cultural differences that I think American audiences, we just don't have that basis of, where it's something like, you know, when Disney, because, of course, animated series, we're talking about Disney a lot, tangentially, when Disney does this stuff, we all kind of get it, you know? When they reference something, we all have that cultural grounding of going, oh, that's a, you know, Snow White reference or Hans Christian Andersen reference, maybe, or Grimm's Fairy Tales or something. Where we just don't have that grounding that Hayao Miyazaki puts so strongly into his movies. Uh, so there's probably, like, that probably has a lot to do with why I'm not the hugest fan of a lot of that content, because there are so many, like, references and callbacks, things I don't understand. Um, and generally, uh, you know, I'm like every human when I don't understand things, I just get angry and want to throw stuff. So <laughs> sure, sure. When the 18th brand of Mayo Chup comes out, you just want to, you know, burn the supermarket down and start over type of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I it's just crunch. Really? I'm not saying that I haven't mixed Mayo and ranch. Oh wait, uh, ketchup and ranch together. I'm just saying did they need to sell it to me already mixed together? You know what bothers me is that in my undergrad, Robert Morris University, RMU, they had French, which was ranch and French, and it was really okay. good. But then I, when I came out here to Colorado, I went to a restaurant, and they had French, and I thought it was that. But apparently it was just fancy ranch, and it was blue oh. cheese and ranch. And it was really good. Don't get me wrong, because I love blue cheese and ranch. But I was like, no, we need more distinction in our condiments, okay? Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We, you know how, like, the um, what, the, there's that law that, like, um, uh, chargers have to be uniform, what, that European law that, like, basically blocked Apple from doing chargers, or Apple's, whatever it is, you know, they tried to be uniform about that. We need that, we need that with condiments. <laughs> I mean, solid agree, like, hard, hard agree. Yes, That's... yes. So, um, so, Ben, basically what you're saying is that um, when all these things get mixed together in uh, Heinz Mayonnaise's movies, Hayao Miyazaki, he's great. I'm sorry we started this joke now because neither Ben and I are going to be able to break free from it. Um, he, he's, he's putting too much fantasticism. He's putting too many, like, I don't know, I, I, I'm tempted to say fairy tale elements where it's, and I, I like what you said, it's more about the artwork and the composition than it is the story. Because you have things that come out of left field. You have things that are very bluntly put. I mean, I think The Wind Rises, our topic of discussion today, it is kind of jarring. Don't get me wrong. I love this movie. I love all of Hayao Miyazaki's movies. But don't get me wrong. It is very jarring when we had the scene at the uh, at the hotel where Jiro goes to... Um, uh, the the girl's father and is like, you know, I want her hand in marriage. I love her and she loves me. She comes down the stairs and she goes, I do hope you'll approve, father. By the way, my mother died of tuberculosis. I have tuberculosis. Can you still love me? And it's just like, oh my God. Like, that just happened in 30 seconds, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, especially because, like, at this point through the movie, so, like, they meet when, when she's a little child and then he, I kind of get pedophile vibes from Jiro because he's like, I tried to hunt her down because I presumably <laughs> want to stick my penis in her, and she's only a child. And I'm like, this is a little weird. Maybe there's some cultural things I don't know about, but by our standards, this is weird. And then they meet at a hotel, and they, they know each other for like four minutes. And then he's like, will you marry me? And she's like, yes, but I have tuberculosis. <laughs> You're not wrong. You are absolutely not wrong. It is so strangely paced compared to American cinema. And I think we talked about that a little bit with Under the Shell, where, you know, uh, sorry, Ghost in the Shell, 
Um, I combined Under the Skin and Ghost in the Shell because of Scarlett Johansson. I apologize, everybody. But with Ghost in the Shell, the animated version, you know, we talked about how we don't get any of that background about, you know, why our main character is is this cyborg-type creation type of thing. But in the American version, we need those flash—or the studio thinks— audiences need those flashbacks there's there's much more of a breakneck pace i think to japanese storytelling or maybe not breakneck but throwing the audience into the deep end and saying this is how you should feel feel it now type of thing uh yes but i mean we've mentioned naruto and and some of those fight scenes and they're just like you know uh, instead of Yes. You don't get a backstory. It's like, let me explain in excruciating detail why I'm really smart. Yes, yes. The, the uh, love and, of the lore are, rather than my the... My techniques are so cool. Exactly, um, exactly. Yep. And and so, like, to some degree, yes, there are times where they're like, we're not going to tell you anything. And then there are other times where they're like, we're going to tell you way too much. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I mean, maybe that's a reason, as you say it that way, maybe that's a reason I really love Japanese animation as much as I do because I don't think it is you know, steadfast put in a mold of how to structure itself, like I think a lot of American movies are. Um, you know, like the 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 American screenplay has to fit such a rigid structure. Um, and when you break from it, either you bomb or you succeed fantastically, like with Tarantino being nonlinear or something like, you know, Noah Hawley doing the Fargo TV show when it doesn't click, it doesn't click, that type of thing. Where Japanese stuff is just like, they get to do more of what they want. I think there might be some level of less studio interference over there. I know for a fact with Hayao Miyazaki's movies, there's less studio interference than the American system because Hayao Miyazaki owns the studio. And so he basically gets to do whatever the hell he wants type of thing. (laughs) And that's why he mixed ketchup and uh, mustard together. Exactly. And that's why he made... And nobody stopped him. Fancy ranch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, okay, I'm sure we'll get into more of that as we talk more about The Wind Rises, because that's, I have a lot to say about this movie, but I figured, since we queued it up in some past episodes, um, I think, Ben and I, you said, well, we're gonna do a Miyazaki movie, we just don't know which one yet, and I wanted to talk about some of the other ones and why we're not covering those, uh, because we only slotted one spot for Miyazaki. Well, one, first and foremost, a lot of his movies are children-oriented, I mean, Ponyo from 2008 is basically the Japanese version of The Little Mermaid. It's a great movie. It's a fun movie, um, but it's very much a children's movie. Ben and I talked a little bit about possibly covering My Neighbor Totoro. While that is very much presented and wrapped as a children's movie, it deals a lot with adult themes, which is why we talked about it. I mean, if you have not seen Totoro, My Neighbor Totoro since you were a kid, go back and watch it. It's kind of unsettling how much that movie is about, like, the reason Totoro exists is because the two sisters are dealing with the death of their mother, that type of thing. Um, Lupin the Third, um, Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, his early movies, they're a little more adult, but I don't think they're as refined. I want to do something later for Miyazaki. Howl's Moving Castle is very much adult, and I love the take on Howl's Moving Castle. That movie is basically about... Every time you do a little thing that you don't agree with, it starts to eat away at who you really are. Um, and that's the kind of whole purpose of Hal is that he changes form throughout the movie because he's fighting for Japan in the war, that type of thing. But that movie is very much presented through the uh, Sophie character, who is a child but turned into an old woman. And the whole Billy Crystal, Billy Crystal playing Calcifer thing is just out of this world. So we didn't want to do that. We talked a little bit about Princess Mononoke, which is probably his second most adult movie after The Wind Rises. That movie is very much about, you know, 
the relationship between humans and nature. Um, that's a very, very fan- fantastical movie. You know, not really fanciful, but fantastical with, you know, forest spirits and stuff like that. Um, if anybody's not seen Princess Mononoke, the third act of that movie is wild. When they the humans steal the head of the forest spirit, shit goes so wrong so fast. It's a great thing. Porco Rosso, I was thinking of. That's a very another World War II plane-heavy movie, but I think that is wrapped in some element of children, you know, um, motifs and stuff like that. The main character is a flying pig type of thing. Um, you have a woman who's in love with it. You know, it's very, like, fairy tale esque And uh, Spirited Away we can't do because we already covered it, and that's very much a children's movie. I'm sure there's some I'm forgetting in there. Uh, oh, Kiki's Delivery Service. What's that movie about? A witch loses her power to fly when she needs it most. You know, it's a very fun movie. But that left us with Hayao Miyazaki's last movie, The Wind Rises. I think decidedly or distinctively his most adult movie. Um, it is based, in fact, to some extent. Uh, Jiro Hirosuke or Hiroshiki, I've don't, I don't have it pulled up in my notes right now, um, is based on a real person who designed these planes that were used in World War II. Um, he did know this kind of weird German slash Russian spy for a weekend at a hotel, which is a part of this movie. Um, He did have a fiancé with tuberculosis. And um, we figured this would be the movie to go to because it gets at a lot of adult themes that I think are very different from Hayao Miyazaki's other movies. So, Ben, now I have to ask you, since you said this whole thing about you went to the um, Fandango Presents, you went to those theaters and saw some of these movies, was this one that they played? Had you seen this movie prior to watching it for this recording? Uh, no, they. I, I know they played Spirited Away and Mononoke. I think the Howl's Moving Castle showing got canceled for some reason. Ooh, okay. Um, I don't entirely remember. Either that or I was out of town that weekend, so okay. I didn't see that one. Um, actually, now that you've mentioned it, like I want to watch Howl's Moving Castle um, because the thing you just described, that, that sounds fucking Petersonian as shit. Oh, absolutely. Like, yes, yes. You know, as, as you do things that you that you don't agree with or that are against your morals – it like eats away at your soul. Yes. Um, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> well. I don't. I don't know that we should get into it. But th- but that's one of those things where, where people, you know, they they have this like really simplistic idea of like why do you have to have opinions about other people's lives? It's like well, uh, because if I let those things happen around me, it slowly devours my soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So you know, it's it's not. Uh, I, I guess anyway, th- that's just like a naive criticism of those things, and I think that that's something that everyone could stand to learn a little bit about. Sure. Um, so I, I probably will watch that movie, but I no, I don't think The Wind Rises was was among uh, on the list. Okay, okay. Um, and to be completely honest, like this movie came out what 2017? I think 2013. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. yeah. I think this is a, a quite a while ago now. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I was thinking uh, from the other ones. I mean, I, I don't I guess I don't know when they came out, but this one seemed newer to me than sure. Sure. The others. OK. OK. Well, um, I, I uh, before we get into it, the, talking about this movie specifically, I, I figured this episode, since we're talking about Hayao Miyazaki, a very well respected animator, um, not just for me. Um, not just from Ben as well, because I think you respect him, even though he might not be a cup of tea. Uh, also from critics, his movies get a lot of it's you know cup of mustard, uh, cu- <laughs> cup of French, you know. <laughs> um, I I think that you know this is a better time of any. Also because we're in the middle of our adult animation series, um, I, I figured this would be the best place to put it. I would be remiss if we didn't spend some time complaining about 
the Oscars Best Animated Feature category because Hayao Miyazaki shows up on these lists quite a bit, uh, only has one win, which we'll get to, of course. Many of his movies get nominated but don't win because um, my opinion is that the Pixar dick has made the Oscars soft. Let's talk about the Best Animated Feature category for a little bit. I have some notes and things I want to mention. Of course, we've already talked about this way back when last year. This category only exists since 2001. And in 2001, the first ever win for Best Animated Feature is one of the most embarrassing things and one of the reasons I will always cite as why the Oscars are a load of shit and shouldn't be, you know, held in any regard whatsoever. Um, Shrek in 2001 wins the first ever Best Animated Feature. Uh, That is embarrassing. The Oscars do a little bit to regain some standing because the second ever award in 2002 deservedly goes to Spirited Away, which is one of the best films of all time. But I want to keep going here. I want to mention some other things because I think uh, some of these are absolutely atrocious. 2003... Finding Nemo wins and beats out Sylvain Chomet's Le Triplice du Belleville, which is a fantastic silent animated movie that everybody should see. Um, But this is when Pixar really starts running the game. Um, 2005 is a good win. Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Tune in next week when Ben and I talk about stop motion. I think the Wallace and Gromit movie, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, is a big step forward in what stop motion can do. Um, you know, after Henry Selleck does Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach in the 90s, but that beats out Howl's Moving Castle in 2005. 2006, Ben, this is an interesting one, Happy Feet wins, which I absolutely love Happy Feet. Uh, George Miller does some great work with CGI animation in that movie, but it beats Monster House, and I figured I should mention that because everybody, check out the Cinemodities Patreon where Ben and I discuss Monster House and how that's basically a Harry Potter ripoff. Remember that conversation from like a year <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean the three main characters are anyway listen to the episode yes patreon.com slash cinemodities we got monster house on there 2007 is when it starts to get baffling to me because the winner of best animated feature in 2007 is ratatouille which is not a bad movie by any means but it beats out persepolis and persepolis is the um iranian um the iranian adapt adaptation of the graphic novel about a woman trying to deal with the oppressiveness in Iran and things like that. It's one of the best animated features of all time. Um, Persepolis is something everybody should see if you're into animation. And Ratatouille wins? Like, okay, come on. Like, Ratatouille's, like, fun for the whole family. Ratatouille should not have won Best Feature that year. Brad Bird should have won Best Director for Ratatouille because Brad Bird changed how animation was done in the modern studio system. Um, But Persepolis should have won hands down. And um, if they ever went back and changed things, that would be one they have to change. 2008, very deserved win, WALL-E. WALL-E is a fantastic film that is basically silent for the first half of the movie, and it, it, it achieves a lot with animation. Two- Wally. Wally. Uh, 2009 is um, the fucking stupidest year for the Oscars animated feature in existence um, because The Secret of Kells loses, Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox loses, and Coraline loses, which, Ben, you know, Coraline is one of the greatest things to ever exist. It loses to fucking Up. Up. Oh, God. Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, Ben. You've... You've defended, maybe not fully defended, but we've talked about Up on this podcast before. 
I, I have a I have a question. If anybody says they really like Up, can anybody who likes Up describe the movie to me other than the first 10 minutes? Does anybody know what fucking happens in that movie? Because every time I talk to anybody about Up, they go, oh man, that first 10 minutes is so heart-wrenching. And I'm like, okay, what's the rest of the movie about? And they're like, no, it doesn't matter. His wife dies. And I'm like, then it's a short film. You, like, you can't tell me it's a good movie if you don't remember the rest of the movie after the emotional manipulative scene at the beginning. You know, an ostrich. Is there it's an ostrich? On a, it's not. It's not an ostrich. Whatever island they end up on, there's like there's. They give it a name. I forget. It's some kind of ostrich. <laughs> like, um, what is the plot of Up? Somebody he, please tell me. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it's about an old man that whose wife dies. Have, <laughs> yeah, who wants to have a flying house? God, and he wants to go on an adventure that he promised he would take his wife on. Th- this and then is... he runs into one of their heroes who turns out to be a bad guy. And then it's uh, Jurassic Park from there, I think. I think there's a talking dog in Up, I think. Oh, yeah, it has a collar that lets it talk. Yeah, Cool. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome that nobody remembers that movie, but Diz- or Pixar did so well in that first ten minutes that everybody wants to suck their dick? We don't have to, we don't have to relitigate Up ever again. Um if you want to hear more about Up, go listen to our Patreon and listen to the searching episodes because the first 10 minutes of searching are the same as Up, basically, and it does it way better as a full movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, but, I mean, even if Coraline wasn't going to win in 2009, which it should have, of course, because Henry Selleck is a genius and that movie is amazing, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox should have won. The stop motion of Fantastic Mr. Fox, the voice acting, that is fan- is absolutely fantastic. Uh, excuse the uh, the reference there. But this is when the Oscars, like I said, the Pixar dick started to make them go soft. In 2010, Toy Story 3 wins. Toy Story 3 is the one that I think everybody's like, why the fuck does this need to happen? Why did it come out, you know, 11 years after the second one? Nobody was asking for this. We basically paid Tom Hanks, you know, a bajillion dollars to do it. But here's the other thing. This is what it beats in 2010. One, it beats L'Illusionist, the Sylvain Chauvet silent animated film, which makes me cry every time. Um, That (laughs) last shot of Magicians Do Not Exist is the saddest thing in existence. But it also beats How to Train Your Dragon. How to oh, Train Your Dragon is a dis- definitively better movie than Toy Story yes. 3. <laughs> yeah. um, 2011, Gore Verbinski's Rango deservedly wins. That's a very interesting take on animation and what it does. 2012, they go back to being absolutely atrocious. Brave wins. Does anybody remember fucking Brave? Well, you had a red-haired girl. Oh, wow. How brave of you. And it beats out Laika's Paranorman. Paranorman, one of the best examples of stop motion in the 2010s. They do things that it's like a second movie, I'm pretty sure, after Coraline. And they advance the art form so much. And Paranorman is also, um, uh, there's 45 minutes of me crying nonstop in that movie. Um, From when Courtney and Norman talk in the library until the end of that movie, I am crying my eyes out. And I got the chance to see that in a theater uh, about a year ago at one of those Fandango special events for an anniversary. And I just cried in a theater for 45 minutes. It was fantastic. Um, 2013, here's the year we're talking about. The Wind Rises gets nominated, but it loses. It also loses along with Ernest and Celestine, the Belgian movie, which is a a good movie. It's based on kids' books. Um, Still pretty good. Also beats out, Ben, are you ready for this? The Croods got nominated for Best Animated Feature. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in the same year, The Croods and The Wind Rises were put in the same category. But 
they lose out, all of those that I mentioned lose out in 2013 um, to, I'm pretty sure what you said, Ben, is your favorite film of all time because it is a lesbian allegory, Frozen, which we've talked about before. That, of course, is, uh, they're just Disney, I mean, they're gargling the nuts of Disney and Pixar at this point. Um, 2014, The Box Trolls loses, another Leica movie, great stop-motion movie, not my favorite Leica, which we talked about, but a still very good one. Loses out to, and here's another thing I never, I never knew, that this actually won. It's a movie that I think you and I have a special place in our heart for, me because of Kingdom Hearts, you because you've actually seen it. Big Hero 6 won oh, Best yeah. Animated Feature, I did not know that. Good for it. I mean, that's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, 2015, beating out Anomalisa. Tune in next week, and uh, we talk about that movie and how fucking insane it is. Um, Shaun the Sheep, the movie, a great stop-motion animated film. That loses as well. Boy and the World, the Brazilian animated movie that regularly gets called one of the greatest pieces of hand-drawn animation in the last, like, 20 years. That loses to inside fucking out like can can the can the penis get any farther into the oscars at this point like there's there's tearing going on now and ben it doesn't it doesn't stop 2016 kubo and the two strings a fantastic another like a movie fantastically beautiful movie that loses uh, Ma Vie de Cougette, the French movie which translates to My Life as a Zucchini. Uh, fantastic stop motion movie. That loses. Moana loses in 2016. One of the biggest musicals and animated movies in our lifetime loses to Zootopia. Oh, God. Yes. Uh, yes. Isn't, isn't Moana Disney? <laughs> it is Disney, but Zootopia is also Disney. And Zootopia had a cute rabbit. So. Oh, fuck, fuck songs and meaning in your movie when you have a cute rabbit, right? Zootopia is not even good. No, Zootopia is fucking garbage. The only thing people think about Zootopia anymore is all the porn they draw of that rabbit. <laughs> yeah, well, and and the the sloth DMV scene. Oh, everyone my... was like, "Oh, that's real life." God, um, I hate that scene. If you are going awful. to physically make me watch something slow, I hate you. I fucking hate you. <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's a terrible experience, but everybody got to like, uh, what was like suffer in kind about it. Like there was like this common commonality of suffering that nobody needed. It wasn't like anybody needed a hot take on the DMV or bureaucracy, right? It's a low hanging no. fruit joke that oh god that got yeah. memeified. Oh, Fucking stupidest shit. That's twenty sixteen. Um, twenty seventeen. It keeps going. The winner is Coco, and I've heard a lot of good things about Coco. I've never seen it, but I've heard good things. But it beats Loving Vincent, the, the animated documentary about Vincent Van Gogh's life, or Vincent Van Gogh, however you want to pronounce it, that is animated like Starry Night. Like, the whole movie is animated like Vincent Van Gogh's paintings. And okay. it is beautiful. It is such a fantastic documentary. And fucking Coco wins. Go fuck yourself. 2018, they have a brief moment of respite, deservedly winning the best animated feature, Into the Spider-Verse. Very well deserved yeah. because that is an actual feat of animation. And even though, once again, check out the Patreon, even though I physically cannot watch the last 30 minutes of that movie because it will break my brain because it'll scar my corneas, it's so crazy. It is an actual feat of animation. And then 2019, that's the last year I'm going to mention because the 2020 and 2021 are Soul and Encanto, and animated movies. Didn't really get a lot of love because of COVID and stuff like that. 2019, guess what wins, Ben? Toy Story 4. What? 
who fucking even saw that movie, right? I, yeah, <laughs> I did. I don't even sure I knew it existed. It's even a fucking shame that Toy Story Four beats out shit that I I have maybe seen some of or heard of, but not worth mentioning. La Casa Lobo from Argentina is not even nominated. The La Casa Lobo does something with stop motion with sticky notes that's never been done. Like, they actually... And there's a whole thing about La Casa Lobo where, you know, it's like... I, I think maybe it didn't get nominated or didn't get attention because it's framed as, like, a Nazi propaganda film that was dug up from the 50s because, you know, Nazis went to Argentina, that type of thing, after World War II. And it's used as basically, like, um, a propaganda film to scare people from pointing out Nazis to Nazi hunters after World War II, and it's it's all stop motion. It's a very, very interesting film, but they do something with the art form that Toy Story 4 can only fucking dream to do. Toy Story 4 was just copy-paste Woody, copy-paste Buzz. Oh, who's the new character in Toy Story 4? Uh, it's a fork with googly eyes. That's lit- There's literally a character in Toy Story 4 oh, yeah. named Forky, and it's a fork with googly eyes. Are you fucking kidding me? That wins Best Animated Feature when La Casa Lobo, it's only 70 minutes long, but they have literal buildings being built up and torn down in a minute made out of sticky notes and stop motion. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my God. It makes me so goddamn angry that the Oscars suck so much of Pixar's and Disney's dick. It hurts me deeply, Ben. (laughs) I can feel it. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, I had to get that out of the way. I figured there would be no better time than with Hayao Miyazaki because, like I said, Spirited Away is his win. Howl's Moving Castle gets nominated, and so does The Wind Rises. The Wind Rises. Let's get into it. Do you want to talk any more about the Oscars, Ben? Do you have any thought on the Oscars other than, you know, they suck and we shouldn't give them any attention? And even when they get things right, it still kind of sucks because they've gotten so many things wrong. (laughs) What kind of self-respecting person watches the Oscars? Dude, I I think the same thing. (laughs) That's that's what I have to say about it. I (laughs) I think that's what I had to say about the Will Smith incident, too. Yes, that's right. The slap, of course. God, um... The the thing the only reason people paid attention or thought about I should say thought about the Oscars this year, I, I'm surprised they didn't pay Will Smith to like and give him extra special awards for making the Oscars interesting, right? Um, right. <laughs> but you know that's more important than the war in Ukraine. So let's go. Keep your mayo chups out your mouth or whatever. I I tried. I tried right there. <laughs> um, Are you ready to talk about? Mustard Heinzenaki. Yeah, let's get into the Wind Rises because this is an absolutely beautiful movie. And I think the best way to start is um, by asking you a very important question. Um, uh, when did you start crying while watching this movie? <laughs> uh, I think at one point I accidentally pulled a nose hair uh, and then my eyes watered a little bit. Ooh, okay, okay. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, this movie didn't make me cry. I, I had, I, I'm curious about what what makes you cry about it because I had no connection whatsoever to him and his relationship with his wife. Oh my god, I love that stuff, and I'm actually glad you bring that up because that's something I I kind of you know, th- this this episode or this discussion, watching this movie in particular for this recording made me kind of realize this. Um, we talked about it last month in uh, Big Fish, my, uh, my unexpected love pick, uh, because it was unexpected, because that's such a romance movie. I think I kind of get what I love about romance in films. I love 
chance romances. So remember Big Fish, like um, Edward Bloom, Ewan McGregor, just kind of by happenstance sees Sandra Templeton at uh, Calloway's Circus and time stops and everything, and he sees the love of his life, and that's where the romance starts. I think this is very similar, is that it's a—well, the earthquake at the beginning with the the younger versions of our characters, that is a very momentous um, situation. Uh, But before that, you know, what, Jiro's hat blows off and she catches it, almost falls off the train— um, even when they're later on in life, when her umbrella or her parasol, as they call it in the English dub, which I love, um, it blows away and he catches it. I think I'm starting to understand. I really like chance romances. I like small moments between people that create something so powerful yet intangible and indescribable that it is only felt or understood if you've felt it before in your own life. I don't really like the whole thing of like, you know, let's say, romance movies where, um, you know, two people fall in love and they, and they fall deeply in love, but then it turns out one of them said a tiny lie and they break up and, you know, then they get back together. And, uh, or maybe even to use an example we've talked about, the um, uh, Chasing Amy example of the whole thing, of Ben Affleck being like, you're a lesbian, but I got a penis, you know? Like, I don't really like when the romance or the creation of the romance is so heavily focused on. I like when it's just a glance, when it's a chance meeting, when it's a hat blowing away, when it's something that for some reason draws people together. I, there's something about that. It, it's fantastical, and I think that's the cutest shit, if I may put it that way. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a reason it's called a meet cute. And, uh... Yeah, but I never really loved that phrase. I, my, my favorite use of that phrase in the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode where they talk about that at a bar they go to, because I think they go to a bar to like – figure out how to do um, patties better and they like Dennis and, and um, D start like seeing oh it's a will they won't they between these two bartenders you know it's like watching a soap opera and it's like that's their meat cute and Charlie is like you know did you say meat cube I like that idea <laughs> <laughs> and he's like that's why so can't I buy meat sunny. cubes you know <laughs> Classic. It's always sunny. Uh, no, but I mean that's I mean that's what you're describing, and, and I, I'm yes. glad that you took the time to distinguish what makes you not like rom coms because a rom com is a chance meeting. Uh, then with the other attachment, you know that you said that you don't like. Um, but if if rom coms were just a chance meeting and then happily ever after, you think you would like that? Probably not. I think there's something very powerful to using this movie and Big Fish as our two examples. Um, I think there's something very powerful to making sure the characters, if not both, one, because unfortunately in this movie, the female character, Nahoko, is in love and sick. That's her modes, you know? Um, But Jiro very much has something else going for him with his love of of engineering and aircraft design. I think the same thing goes with Edward Bloom. Edward Bloom in Big Fish, not only does he love Sandra Templeton, but he is so indebted to his other relationships and, you know, building up Spectre from the ground up and that type of thing, Um, which everybody go check out that episode. It's a a great discussion. Great movie as well. I think there's something very powerful to having characters be in love— but not making that their focal point. And I think a lot of rom-coms, they put too much emphasis on that, you know, nothing else matters except our love. Like, one of my favorite scenes in The Wind Rises is when Jiro has to go visit Nahoko or chooses to go visit Nahoko while I think he's being chased by um, the secret police, uh, who they don't say Gestapo in this movie, um, but World War II times, I think that's what they are. Um, You know, 
he has to go visit Nahoko, and he's on the train, still working on his design, and you get the shot of him using the slide rule, and it's a shot of his paper while he's doing calculations, and tears are falling onto the paper. And that is the exact idea of what I love or what I want from romance movies, is that these characters clearly have other goals and aspirations in life, and romance is almost getting in the way, but they're trying to play the balancing act of getting it to work. Where in something like Chasing Amy, which is not the best example because it's not truly a rom-com, it's a Kevin Smith movie, I think the whole thing is like Ben Affleck might as well be a homeless person in that movie. His only goal is to have sex with this lesbian. And that's like, like people are more than, than love, right? Yes. Um, but I mean, what... So what, what you're talking about is, is what the camera's focusing on, right? Because like, obviously we have to assume that there's some amount of other stuff happening. Um, sure, it's just, sure. It's just that the story focuses on this particular part of it. Yeah, so, so yeah, yeah I, I, I definitely, I, I see you, I see where you're coming from. You want, you want them to focus on more than just the love. Exactly. Uh, and it's something like, you know, take for example, um, like movies like Friends with Benefits, No Strings Attached. Even go to like The Notebook. Even go to um, you know more serious ro- like romantic movies that aren't even rom coms, but like The Notebook, like um, Nicholas Sparks books and stuff like that. Um, what the uh, the Five Feet Apart movie with Dylan or Cole Sprouse? I don't remember. It's like clearly other things are happening. I think it's what Friends with Benefits with Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake. That might be No Strings Attached. I don't remember because they're the same movie basically. But it's like yeah. Mila Kunis. It's like the start of the movie is her in an office and she's like, "I'm a very strong woman and I have an ad executive job." And then basically that never gets mentioned again because it's about the romance. And yes, you're right. Other things are going on, but I want more detail. In their other goals and aspirations, you know, I don't want them to be like, you know, throwaway line of dialogue. Oh, I was going to go on the date with him, but I had to blow him off because I had to do work. Like, show them doing the work. Show them making the decision to do the work over. Exactly. And instead, most movies play it as just like, man, isn't love the strongest force in the universe? And it's like, no, Sometimes, you know, dealing with the fact that your beautiful airplane designs might be used to bomb other countries, maybe that's a little stronger than love sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. <laughs> uh, I think the strong nuclear force might be the strongest. No, no, I... <laughs> I don't know, um, dude. That... Dude, I, I one time, I rubbed a balloon on my hair, and it Shit. defied gravity. That's pretty strong, bro. Okay? Um... No, I mean I, I'm with you. I, I, uh, it definitely makes the story more human. Yeah. When you see these other elements of of their of their character, um, and that's that's why I can give like Ghost of Girlfriend's Pass like a, a pass on that particular problem because that movie this is set in one weekend where they're intentionally removed from their normal lives. Sure, that's a for good a, a good a good take because it's not like you know oh we get any time lapses where we're confused about the timeline like it is just what two or three days where that is right. the focus of these people. Right. And it's the, the movie the story provides a very good reason why that's the focus whereas in normal rom-coms uh, it's just you know um dude sees girl dude becomes infatuated with the girl mm-hmm. e- either girl turns him down and dude doesn't give up and that's somehow romantic yeah doesn't take or, no for an answer exactly or as you said they do get together 
Uh, so, you know, there's the two types. They either kiss at the end of the movie or they kiss partway through the movie and then they have a fight. Like, those are the two types of rom-com, I you think. You told me you had two dogs, but you have three? How could you lie to me like this? And where it's like, oh, my God, there's 45 minutes left of this bullshit? Just yeah. kiss and end the movie. I don't care. <laughs> well, and, and of course, like that, it's always something so stupid, too, where it's like, you have three dogs and you lied about, you, only, you said you only had two and then they're like, but I actually got the third dog yesterday. And then they never actually tell them that. <laughs> so it's like the whole movie is based on the simple misunderstanding that could yep. be cleared up with one line of dialogue. And it's like, we're we're just going to ignore that fact. I, I, I find that to be true with like pretty much every uh, rom-com. And that's why I, I think that there's kind of an inherent problem with rom-coms in, in that their dialogue or rather their plot is so easily. Um, yeah, yeah fixed so as to not be interesting by one line of dialogue oh Um, yeah exactly it's like you can you can physically feel when you're watching those types of movies the moment where the characters are clearly talking to each other and you go if you just said this one sentence every single one of your problems would evaporate immediately (laughs) yeah Uh, and then of course you always have the question like why didn't he just tell her this it's like because so the movie could happen yeah um and and that's that makes for a bad viewing experience i think the example that we haven't mentioned also is um you know two people might not be the best pairing in a relationship at the start uh one of them might be very horrible like literally one of them might be committing genocide but then they tell the story of how their dog died when they were little and that makes them human and they clearly have to fall in love now Oh my God! Get over yourself. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's pretty much my life story. So, <laughs> I, just um, up, I just blew up your spot, Ben. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I mean, Ben was I, committing I, genocide against uh, Mayo Chuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I uh, mustered Hayanaki in me. Like we go way back, and there was lots of lots of uh, genocide uh, or con- condominocide. I don't. Ooh, I like condiment. Condimenticide. You have to pronounce the T, otherwise it sounds like you know we're we're condomside or whatever. Condomicide, you know. <laughs> Condomicide. Yeah. So you know, I, I mean, and and then I was redeemed because at some point when I was young, uh, somebody made fun of me and didn't pick me uh, for uh, dodgeball. Yes. And yes. then it's like, oh, bam! Fucking right on. He's a normal person that didn't commit commit condomicide or whatever, <laughs> whatever the fuck we are I'm a saying. good christian podcast you should not be having sex unless it is for the purpose of procreating okay everybody let's get that straight <laughs> condom side Con- condom side yes absolutely yeah. no I, I also think you know on this whole point that this this kind of it's it's you know, dawning on me that this is what I love about romance is that it, the romance shouldn't be the focus. Romance should be, like I said, playing the balancing act. I think another reason I love The Wind Rises so much is because the romance doesn't start until like an hour into the movie, you know? Like the first yeah. half of the movie is so steeped in his career, his profession, his love for designing aircraft. And I I think that, you know, I, I care so much about the romance later on because I know that he is starting, Jiro is starting to juggle many different, you know, uh, plates when he falls in love with Nahoko, but he still has to care about, you know, his first and true love. And I, I think there's a great balance between, well, love between people is very strong and very important. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not like a cold, cold man or anything like that. Love between people is very strong, but love of what you do and what you can provide to your career, to the world, to your profession, to other people that you're not intimately involved with 
is just as strong, if not stronger, I think, you know? Oh, man. But see, okay, so you're, you're speaking about this from your personal perspective, and I appreciate that. Absolutely, but I think yeah. that there is something we should, we should address or, okay. or, or at least recognize. Uh, there are a lot of people in the world who don't have a calling, if That's you will. That's very fair. Or, that is absolutely Or at the very, very least fair. don't know what their calling is, which is uh, just as bad. Yes. Um, so, you know, for some people, well, and, and, and then there, and then I think there are other people where their entire calling is to, to procreate. Um, sure. and it, it's like their, their calling is to raise children to whatever degree that they can. And perhaps, perhaps their children will do something different. And then, yeah, then we, you, we call like, them the good Christian cinema audience, but yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then you get something like, well, you know, their calling is to create people who have other callings. And it's like, you know, if that's if that's who you are and that's what your life is, then, you know, maybe the rom-com actually like maybe that's who the rom-com represents is sure. these people who who don't have like I guess I'm, I'm kind of put in the mind uh, or I'm thinking about like a, well, it's either the prestige or, or the illusionist because those movies came out at the same time with the same basic premise. Yes. Um, but like one in one of them one of the guys is married and his wife is just like, some days you're married to me and some days you're married to your job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and like not everybody's like that. Some people are always married to their spouse and never to their job. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I think that I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I think perhaps you connect with these movies because th- these movies actually connect with you. Uh, Whereas... No, no, you are absolutely right. And you know, I think it's, um, I think I speak for both of us when, you know, I, you know, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you and I understand that where we've been around enough people. Um, I, I think of like Uspensky as an example. I think of, you know, Dr. Lynn from Ohio, who is the statistics guy I worked with. I think of other people I've worked with in, um, you know, computer science at, at CSU. We've been around a lot of these people who have this calling and, and really care about, you know, pursuing their field and stuff like that. And And I have such a respect for that. But you're absolutely right. If someone is, you know, working a nine to five at like a warehouse or a grocery store or, you know, whatever, um, they might not have their calling. Their calling does, maybe not does, but is more of the sense of like, who am I surrounding myself with and how important are those people to me? Well, and, and so something that I, I think I, I don't know if I've ever told you as, as much as I uh, was, you know, a motivated student and, and a very successful student. Uh, one of the reasons that I felt like I never fit in is because I did not have that calling. Okay. Uh, I didn't care about the math. I cared about solving problems to some degree, and sure. I enjoyed solving problems. Um, but at the end of the day, where and, and in what field those problems were, I didn't give a shit. Math was just happened to be a really great place for there to be a lot of problems for okay. me to solve. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so... I, I would interact with people, uh, you know, even people like uh, a guy I know whose name I will not mention because I'm not going to say the most flattering things about him. Um, <laughs> he was not not particularly bright, but he cared a lot. Sure. Um, and as a result, like even, even around him, I was like, man, like you outclass me in a way that you might not realize, you know, comparing our performances, but you outclass me in, in caring. So to some degree, like. I, I am one of those people where it's like I, I was good enough at whatever it is I was doing that I never had to like search for whatever, it, you know, what what I could do. But at the end of the day, like what I do is a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, OK. And okay. and how I spend my time outside of what I do. Like I don't I don't when I'm not working um, unless I'm 
doing a personal project, which occasionally I get really motivated about like wanting a tool that doesn't exist and then I create it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not doing that, then I'm spending time with my, my wife or my friends and playing magic. Like I'm, I don't, I'm not somebody who has that, that calling. So I think in, in some ways like rom-coms connect with me a little more because those personal relationships I, I do find uh, important enough that it would be like outside of my job. Yeah. This is what I'm paying attention. To. Okay. Okay. No, that, that, I mean, I think, you know, that that's a great perspective to put because I think, you know, in, in this movie in particular, it's a blending of those two things. I mean, this might be the middle point between the two extremes of um, rom-coms or romantic things, you know, that are just about love for people who feel that way or maybe not have a higher, uh, I don't want to say higher calling, you know, but a, a, a non-intimate or personal involvement calling. Mm-hmm. Then there's the movies that are very much about, like, people just caring about what they do. Um, I, Whiplash is a great example. And if anybody has never seen Whiplash, oh my God, go watch Whiplash. I mean, it, there's a fantastic scene where, it, well, one, it's the only good Miles Teller performance in existence. He's not a good actor, but Damien Chazelle gets out of him something fantastic in this movie. There's a great scene where he sits down with his girlfriend and he goes, I want to be the best drummer in the world. And I can't be with you because I need to focus on drumming. And she's like, are you breaking up with me because you want to practice drumming? And he goes... It's not that I want to practice drumming. It's that I want to be the best at drumming. And so he like he literally breaks his personal relationships because of his career, because of his chosen passion. And that's the other extreme. I feel like The Wind Rises is this middle point where Jiro is trying to balance these two loves. Very similarly, in Big Fish, Edward Bloom is trying to balance his love for his wife and his family, Sandra Templeton, and, and the kid, you know, Billy Crudup, with his desire to keep Spectre alive, to make sure those people have a home, which is also very personal, but still very much a career, I think. I, that's what I, I think I love about these movies, is where you're playing a balancing act between personal yeah, and professional lives. I was going to say, it, it sounds like we've kind of hit um, maybe a little better understanding of, of why you like this and why you like Big Fish. Yeah. yeah. Um, that it that it has that balancing act, that there's these two very important things and, and that you have to figure out how, how you can have both of them if you can. Exactly. And I think um, that's more realistic where, well, while I love Whiplash, and like I said, everybody go watch Whiplash. If you've seen Whiplash, rewatch the last 12 minutes. The last 12 minutes are so visually arresting. It's basically a 12-minute drum solo, and it is fucking amazing. But, you know, that movie I love for the fact that somebody cares so much about this one artistic thing that they will just, you know, destroy the rest of their life to achieve it. But... I don't like when it's just like, yeah, like I said, Mila Kunis, I'm a big, strong, powerful woman with this ad executive position, and there's maybe two shots of me signing documents and having a meeting, but then the rest of the movie is, man, when do I get to go to dinner with Justin Timberlake? And it's like, come on, there's more to life than that. But I I think you said it best earlier, it's what the camera focuses on. There's always some notion of life going on in the background, but I like when it's focused on more in this middle ground or extremely focused on rather than just the, oh, I gotta be in love type of thing. Sure. And and that's, I mean, that's why I brought up, you know, my own personal experience. Yeah. Because it's like, uh, you know, at, when I clock out, I clock out. Sure. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think about work after I, after I clock out. And that's actually part of the reason that I, I left uh, the academic world. Because I wanted a job I could leave at work. Big time, big time for um, you there. Yep. You know, like I said, you know, like I'm, I'm still good at what I do, and I, I, and I do care about what I do, but I don't, I don't think about it unless I'm 
getting paid to. Okay, okay. That That's actually a good point. I'm glad you bring it up because uh, a big thing I like about this movie, specifically the first half, the half that focuses on the engineering aspect of Jiro's life, um, the aircraft uh, um, aspect, I relate so much to Jiro in the scene where he's eating uh, mackerel with his friends, with um, Hanzo, or Hanjo, and, um, you know, he picks out a bone, and he looks at it, and he's like, man, this is so beautiful. And Hanjo's like, leave it to you to just ignore us and look at a fishbone or something like that. And then the right. next scene, or maybe two scenes later, he's doing his, his little drawing, and he's like, the curvature in this American airplane matches this fishbone exactly, and it has all these aer- aerodynamic properties. And I'm like, I relate to that so hardcore, because I think I'm one of the people that, after I clock out, I might stop thinking about it for a bit. I can't stop thinking about my work. Like, I... Because I'm so in love with it, I think. And I'm, I mean, my current job is, is very, you know, blasé and uninteresting. I'm auditing taxes, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm one of those people, cinema audience. Um, I'm a good Christian cinema audience member. I audit your taxes. But I actually think about it because I find it is so interesting. And the fact that Jiro can find something so simple, so interesting, I relate to that so much, you know? It's, it's like, you know, when you see a weird shape... And you're just like, man, that looks fucking crazy, and I want to stare at it for five minutes. I mean, maybe that's also the autism in me speaking, but I related to that so much in this movie. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, there there were times when I was uh, in my undergrad, um, probably even even uh, at first in grad school, before my love for math had been like, well, like I said, my love for the, pro- the solving the problems that math provides yeah. before it had really uh, been hampered by... Uh, the illnesses and various life things that I suffered at that time, um, I I would be out at a restaurant with friends and I would like figure out a math problem and then pull out a napkin and a pen and write it down mm-hmm. uh, and then and then put that in my pocket and then res- resume hanging out with my friends. You know, and they always knew if I just randomly shouted like "Holy shit!" or or "What the fuck!" or whatever, like that was I was doing something math related. Um, but then again, like I said, at some point that changed for me. Um, academia really was maybe is the worst thing to happen to intellectual people i mean it really beats the shit out of your love for things you know oh yeah i i I, ben and i both have been in academia and um i think you know we both left it for very good reasons and that type of thing i mean um i i know i've told you before and i think i've said on this podcast the whole when i was doing my cybersecurity research the whole thing that i really had all these great ideas and great results and i was like i want to publish i want to take these out to the world i want to make an impact in this community and they were like oh what you have we should dole that out for like three years because we can get a lot of publications i'm like why wait you know and it's like oh because no we can get another trip to hawaii and i'm like yeah trips to hawaii are cool but if that's your motivation for being here what the fuck is wrong with you like why don't you care more about this you know why are you as this tenured professor caring less about this than me you know like like I, it fucking it beats the hell out of you i think it beats the love out of you also oh absolutely uh and that was i mean i i majorly experienced that not just with um my experiences with actual people in the math world yeah but also like the illness that i suffered as well which which then led to me having to do research while I was incredibly sick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that was in large part because I couldn't afford not to. And that just creates a connotation of negative physical feelings with work, which is not good for anybody's mental state, anybody's willingness to do anything also. Absolutely. Um, and so like there are times where I like, I guess I, I miss it and I wish that I could go back to feeling the way that I felt, you know, whenever whenever you were still there for the first two years and, sure. and we, had, uh, we had a good time doing analysis and whatever yeah, uh, God. 
but uh but you know that 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 eventually died and and you know as you said for your own reasons your yours died as well and it's i don't know i guess it's sad like there's a certain amount of mourning that has to be done absolutely that, that was a big part of of my life and i'm sure it was a big part of yours as well yeah yeah and i, I think you know this is also very much you know a good christian cinema audience you know don't think we're just rambling about our personal lives i think this very closely ties into the one of the major themes of this movie i mean i think it's summed up almost perfectly at the very end of the wind rises where the um uh, what, Cap- Cap- Caprudi, Caprani, the Italian guy, he says, airplanes are beautiful cursed dreams waiting for the sky to swallow them up. It's like, we're putting our effort into something we love so much, but we know they're going to be used for bad reasons. We know that they are created just to be destroyed. We know that they're created to crash, almost. And and I think that's what both you and I are saying, is that you know we went into something, or many things throughout our lives, with such strong passion for it, and it gets beat down by what the rest of the world, or maybe not rest of the world, but you know what society or what these systems that we put our passion into want to beat it into and make a mold into it of, and you know we have all these grand ideas, and you know they it turns into no, no, it's like yeah, you can like math, but you got to take these tests at these times, take these classes, and make sure you follow our rigid structure, and it's just like can I just love something? Can I just want to create an airplane? And it goes no, you can't because people are going to use it for their own things. It, it's literally destined to be destroyed, you know that type of thing, and it's it's sad. Well, it's very sad. I, I think in the case of of math, uh, I think maybe I would say destined to be consumed. Yes, um, and. Which I which I've discussed. I I think I probably on and off recording with you multiple times. Uh, math, mathematics research is essentially the the process of of mental masturbation for the sake of creating lubricant so Absolutely. that somebody else can mentally masturbate. All these and that's, fucking weird eccentric people trying to prove that they're smarter than the next weird eccentric person. It's fucking I mean, disgusting. It, <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, and there are some that don't fall into that where it's like it's not that they're trying to prove they're smarter. It's just they care about this shit. And then it's like at some point I was like, but why? Like, what what is the gain from this? And uh, and maybe I come at it a little bit different than you, where it's like they, I was around some people who who cared about it in a in a more pure way, and I was but like mm-hmm. I was I was just like, but but at the end of the day, why, why is this a good way to spend your time? Sure. And sure. um, and. You know the end result of that of that line of questioning was that for me it wasn't a good way to spend my time. Yeah, yep. So, I mean, it's very sad, and I think this is a great conversation to have with this movie because this movie is also very sad for these reasons <laughs> and for many other reasons. Um, but it 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 is just so, I I and that's another reason I really love this movie is because of that notion of Jiro is so passionate about aircraft, about airplanes, which is something I don't share. I mean, I I do want to get to the point. I I think aircraft it's the sheer existence in our life of aircraft has a, a weird philosophical implication which i'm sure we'll get to but the whole beginning of the movie when jiro's young like before the earthquake when he has his first dream sequence you know he's like i can't be a pilot because of my eyesight and, and it looks like he gets almost vertigo or something in one of his dreams type of thing um yeah. and then he's but he has the dream with the italian guy and he's like can i still be involved with airplanes can i still make airplanes and he's like I've invented hundreds of airplanes. I've never flown a single one, you know? And mm-hmm. he has such this deep passion for it. I mean, it also, of course, I mean, the bad example of that is um, Paul Dano in uh, Little Miss Sunshine, where he wants to be a fighter pilot, but then he's colorblind, and, and literally his world crumbles because his little sister says, well, you can't fly planes if you're colorblind. And I'm like, okay, we're just taking that. We're just, like, he's not going to go to the Air Force or anything, and 
get a test done. Like, literally, he couldn't tell, like, green from blue. So the little sister says something, and his whole life is fucking crumbling. And that movie's horrible, I think. But um, I, I love the fact that he's like, you know, oh, if I can't do this with airplanes, let me do that with airplanes. Is that his passion mm-hmm. finds a way. And then it gets bastardized by the whole, you know, company. I mean, the whole thing of, you know... I think the whole scene when they go to Germany, you know, them not being allowed to see certain parts of the aircraft, them getting bad or misinformed government specs from the Germans and things like that. They start to cut through all this red tape. It's like we've been saying, you know, maybe this is a summarization of it. It's like everything we experience in academia where there's a lot of hurdles to get through. And all you want to do is do right by what you love. And other mm-hmm. people and other systems don't let you do that. And that's very sad. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and that... There's definitely um, the hint of that in in the real world, and I think you experienced that to some degree more than I did. Where it's like you had they just like they they wanted to hold on to those to those results for various re- for, you know f- for whatever reason mm-hmm. like they wanted to keep that kind of that kind of thing secret. And you're like, no, like the world, like I'm doing this so that people can know about it. And they're like, well, that's not why we're paying you to do it. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Oh god. And I know I, I know I've told you this before, Ben, but the fucking idea of the whole concept of publishing papers and sending them to reviewers where they would be like, you did not explain this correctly, or you did not mention why you're using this uh, algorithm or this idea. And we get that after, you know, fucking five months of waiting for them to review it. And then I read their review and they go, you did not mention why you're using this implementation. And I go, I can literally send you back this paper with one paragraph highlighted that answers your fucking question. And (laughs) it, it, it's a hurdle. It's a thing that, you know, the, nobody cares as much as we do. And that's, and when I say we, I mean the royal we. And I'm sure everybody has felt this at some point. When you care about something, you realize that nobody else cares about it as much as you do. You know, nobody does like you do. And it's, it's just, it beats the, it beats the motivation out of you. It beats the hell out of you. Because, you know, clearly, you know, uh, I've said it before, maybe the best example is in teaching. I, I love teaching. Ben knows this. I've talked about this a lot on the podcast before. I love teaching. One of the first things I tell my students every semester I've ever taught is I go, I really love doing this. I really love working with people. I really love working with students. I'm not a 60-year-old professor who's been doing this their whole life and can't stand it anymore. And it's a bummer that that's a real thing, that when you've done something for so long, you stop to care. And that is a fucking bummer. That's not across the board, of course, but I feel like that's most of the people who are gatekeeping newer people or younger people from getting into things, is that you have to deal with people who are just like, you know, oh, slow down there, you know, don't work too hard, don't care that much. That The world would be better if we didn't have that mentality. Also, if, you know, I think the the 40-hour, you know, work week of the American culture didn't beat that into us as well. Well, and that's – I'm glad that you brought up the 40-hour work week because that's something that um, I, I've discussed kind of at great length with various people who are incredibly productive. And there are some of them who are that productive because they work 60 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And there are some of them who are more like me where it's like I'm that productive in four hours a day and then I spend the other four hours in the day doing whatever menial tasks I can – can do that qualify as work sure. because I'm supposed to be working that whole time. At the end of the day, they're happy with my production and I could have done it in half the time, but it's, you know, after that, after that four hours, like my brain, it's like, I, I used my brain that whole time. It's dead. 
Like I have to sleep before I can work that yeah, hard again. There's a recharge period, absolutely. And so it's like the, the the work week. Like there are some jobs that absolutely you need something like a like a forty hour work week where it's like a certain amount of labor has to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know our bodies can handle that. Um, our brains can't. Like whenever you're problem solving for for trying to problem solve for forty hours, you're only getting twenty to twenty five good hours. Sure, sure. Uh, and that's something that's like. Uh, well, it's one thing I did appreciate about academia is there was no strict 40 hour clock on it. And then whatever I got done, if it was enough, it was enough and I could stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that's something that anybody who's actually good at what they're doing, um, they can't be working for 40 hours. Like, I, I just don't think that you can mentally exert that much for that long. No, absolutely. I mean, the the mental exertion, I think everybody's felt it. I mean, I I think you and I, Ben, we've talked about it before. It's the idea that, you know, if, if you put in a, a long work day, you know, whether it be eight hours, whether it be six hours, whether it be a full eight hours or, you know, longer of, you know, continual work, whether it be a shorter, more, you know, dense period of work type of thing, when you're done, there's that moment of, like, I fundamentally can't make a decision of what to do, you know? Yep. And it's 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 mental tiredness. It's mental, um, you know, you're drained, and and like you said, you need to sleep, you need to recharge, and it's um, it's something that you know I I think uh, a lot of employers, a lot of these people that we're mentioning, these gatekeepers to these things, that they don't want to acknowledge, if that makes sense. They just want to say like, oh, you're productive here, and that's all that matters. Everything else is on you. If you're having trouble making a decision or you're just choosing to sleep all the time, that's your fault. And it's like, no, everything comes in tandem. There's a dynamic relationship between how much I work, what I do in my free time. And there's also the notion of, I think, you know, uh, nobody really sees your life but you type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, Ben and I and, and, and Zach as well, anybody we do this podcast with, there's there's times where it's like, you know, I will say to Ben, because we're on a time difference, of course, I'll be like, Ben! It's 8 p.m. my time. I'm ready to go for four hours. And I would love if you were ready to go for four hours. But you're like, Rob, it is 10 p.m. my time. I will not give you good conversation. And I will end up hating you if you want to yell at me about the Oscars best animated feature category that late at night. That type of thing. And it's yes. like, okay, you know, I some, sometimes inadvertently or not, you know, actively or implicitly or explicitly, we don't see other people's lives even though we see our own and we think that's the most important thing it's very strange and i think this comes across in the wind rises with the um the company that he works for uh with mr kurakawa who does become one of his best confidants but also uh, hatori the boss type of thing they are i think for most of the movie even at the end when jiro is really being the head of that what falcon project in the last act of the movie um when nohoko is dying that they just see him as production they don't see him as a person i think there's even that scene where he's like you know oh my god are the are the gestapo the secret police in this movie are the gestapo like taking my mail i need those letters and they're like who cares it's like your mail is not important your job is here and he goes no they're from my fiance and they laugh at him and they're like we thought you'd marry an airplane and it's like they don't see his life they don't realize that he's a person and he's trying to do all this work to balance what he wants out of his life and the finite time he has on earth the even more finite time that he has with Nahoko because she's so ill and laughing at him in his face that's something i find very sad because i think everybody's experienced that where you tell somebody a very strong and real feeling that you have and they brush it off like you're making a joke or something and um, that's have, how that scene came across to me are you familiar with um the 
the notion from the Bible that you shouldn't cast pearls before swine. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, that's what it's about. Okay. You you shouldn't you shouldn't give people things that they can't appreciate. Um, right. And so the people who can't appreciate are swine, and the things that are important to you are pearls. It's like you so you just have to know your audience to some degree. It's yeah. like there are some people you just can't share things like that with, and doing so is harmful to you, so you should not. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's unfortunately that's probably most people in your normal life. <laughs> right. I know, and that that's very sad. <laughs> oh God. Uh, that, I mean, that's that's the whole kind of. I find this to be an incredibly sad movie. I think I described it to you when we were planning on doing it, um, because you hadn't seen it, like you said. And I was just basically like, you know, everything is very sad about this movie. His his love for airplanes being bastardized by the war, the looming threat of war, um, mm-hmm. the the whole fact of his wife being, you know, dying of tuberculosis. Whether or not you, I mean, beside the fact that their romance is kindled very quickly, of course. I mean, what we get the 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 meat the meat cube scenes, as we're calling them, <laughs> um, and then we get, you know, basically um, the one of the most adorable things I've ever seen in my life is uh, when he makes the paper airplanes, and you know, they're doing the thing. She's up on the balcony, and he's throwing the airplane to her. And stuff oh like that. Oh my god, that. the whole time I was like, that bitch is gonna fall? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, the angles are rough in that scene. It really is harrowing to some extent. Um, yeah. But I, I find that so cute. And then they just fall in love, and then she says, well, guess what? I have tuberculosis. I want to get well. I gotta go to the sanatorium. Will you wait for me? And he's like, I will wait for you forever. That type of thing. And it's pure love. That beside the fact, just the idea that they are that committed to each other while she has this death sentence, because, I mean, I think it's almost, what, through all of human history, maybe less in the last, what, 20, what, 40 years, because uh, time in my life has been a blur, of course. Like, tuberculosis, from what I know, is like a death sentence. Like, I don't think a lot of people live through tuberculosis. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's right. I think tuberculosis is a, it's a one-way trip. Yeah, yeah. And um, and just just that idea that the whole back half of this movie is just, you know— like every moment they have together is so important because there's such a finite timestamp on it. It's just the saddest thing to me. And um and there's one scene in this movie where it's it's literally like I gotta pause it because like I'm crying. I'm a I'm a sad sack of but well, I should say actually from another movie we discussed, uh, it turns me into a fat a fat, sad sack who can't stop talking about geckos. Um <laughs> The scene when he goes to see her, when he takes the train back um, because she's getting ill and I think she decides to go to the sanatorium. He comes in through the garden in that scene and he rushes up to her and, you know, kicks his shoes off because it's Japan. You can't wear shoes inside, which is a wonderful cultural touch, which is, you know, natural to Hayao Miyazaki, uh, mayo chup ketchup mayonnaise man. Um, And he, he rushes up to her bed and he, like, caresses her and holds her and she says, you'll catch it. And his response is, you're beautiful. I, I just lose it. Like, that fucking kills me, man. I'm like, that is the literal embodiment of their entire relationship. And it is so beautiful. It's so pure. And, it, you know, it, it gets across everything about their feelings without actually having to describe it. Where if that happened in, say, a, a um, The Notebook or a Nicholas Sparks movie or a, um, you know, a rom-com 
they would spend so much time where, like, imagine Mila Kunis being sick in bed and Justin Timberlake rushes over to her, but he stops just short of the bed and there's a shot of his feet not crossing some yellow tape that's on the ground. And she goes, don't come closer. I have a very contagious disease. You cannot come near me even though we want to hold each other. And it'd be like, but I want to hold you. And the American sensibility of that is like, the audience is so fucking stupid, we need to explain our feelings so they can feel it too, where just two lines of dialogue captures everything the audience needs to know in this movie, and it's just absolutely perfect to me. And it, it makes me cry every time. Every time. E-V-R-Y-T-I-E-M. Every time. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, this, I don't know, this maybe is has to do with with our upbringings or or some shit that I was around when I was younger uh there were i i mean just just for to mention one thing like single motherhood um there there was a lot of uh situations where I saw people and they were like I'm attaching my life to this person and I was like that's a reckless Ooh. decision okay okay um and so whenever I saw that scene where she's like you'll catch it and he's like I don't care I was just like i I feel like you would sleep with her if she had AIDS <laughs> like, I feel like you're making bad decisions, you know? You, so, actually, like... you actually bring up a really good point because something I hated about Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries. I don't know if you've seen Chernobyl, Ben, the five-episode HBO miniseries, um, which I uh, greatly disliked. I'm, I'm one of the few people who greatly disliked that. There is a scene in that movie where um, – uh, there's a subplot, I should say, where one of the uh, workers that was – at the Chernobyl plant when the uh, explosion happened, he's in the hospital with deep radiation poisoning. Like, he's basically melting because he has radiation poisoning, you know? And his wife wants to go see him, and the nurses are like, you cannot go near him. Like, he is in quarantine. He is so radioactive, he will infect you. And the wife is just like, I don't care, I love him, and goes to see him, and she gets radiation poisoning too and dies. And that is so stupid to me. I hated that subplot of it because I'm like, oh, go fuck yourself. I, I think it gets to the idea that, you know, that character was defined by love, that female character, where she's like, nothing else matters except me holding my husband's hand, and I don't care if he's a pile of goo with googly eyes because he's so radioactive, you know? And I'm like, get the fuck over yourself, you know? Um, I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean... Yeah, we know he cares about airplanes too, but he also opens himself up to the risk of tuberculosis I in the know, exact same way. I, and that's another okay. So maybe we closed one door with how I love these balances of romance and 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 other professions or other loves, other passions. But now I don't really know why this works for me where they don't care. Because there's also the scene near the end where um, uh, Jiro has to work late at night, and he's sitting next to Nahoko in bed, and he's like, "I have to." I, he's like, "I want to smoke. Can I? Can we let go of our? You know, can we not hold hands for a minute so I can leave?" And she goes, "No, smoke here." And he goes, "It's not good for you." And she goes, "I don't care." Why does that shit work for me when the fucking Chernobyl thing or other examples I'm probably not thinking of, where it's like, "I don't care how sick you are. I'll sleep with you if you have m- mega AIDS, and you know, you have mega super hyper AIDS. You, you literally sneeze anthrax, and I still want to give you a blowjob. You know, why does that sneeze not work for me?" Mouth. Into my mouth. <laughs> right. um, why does that not work? I don't, that's a, maybe that's the next question we have to figure out. It's like, why does this work for me? But the other instances of people throwing away their their wellness for love don't work for me. Well, I, I, I also guess. think that I, I made that up on the on the fly. I think that we should actually we'll add it to the Cinemodities uh, movie studio production docket. We need to make a movie about the man who sneezes anthrax. I think that would be <laughs> a great film. <laughs> Is he a superhero? Um, all right, so. <laughs> 
that's <laughs> I mean if I sneeze anthrax, I'm gonna find a way to use it. I don't know sure, if it'll be sure. Maybe for it's good like maybe it's like E. T. where he's not a superhero, he's just a guy that has this power but the government's after him type of thing. Sure. Yeah, and the yeah. government wants to use him for um chemical warfare, but he's like, No, my sneezes are just for my wife, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I only give her anthrax. Um so my guess is that because you're, it's because you're already attached to their relationship. Okay, I like uh, that. And, like and that. You, you would have to you would have to analyze you know your experiences with those other sources. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, but my guess is that you actually care about their relationship, whereas like with another couple, it's like maybe you don't care about their relationship, mm. so their willingness to make sacrifices for each other just comes across as like, like unearned i guess sure. if maybe is so it's like uh, you know you're just trying to tell me that they're in love whereas opposed to here it's like you already believe they're in love so now you're seeing that they're in love through their sacrifices um maybe it's something to do with that that that's yeah that that's a good point i'm now thinking back on other movie romances that i really like i might have a a warped sense of what i like about movie romances because i like this clearly you know giving up the um the whole idea of, you know, Jiro being well because he, she's just he's just like, I don't give a fuck. Like, you know, cough into my mouth, bitch, you know, that type of thing. Uh, um, I You know, I'm thinking about Big Fish. I love that romance, even though there is that whole chunk of the movie where Edward Bloom is not in his family's life because he's real bi- rebuilding Spectre. I also think back to when we talked about The Nightmare Before Christmas. I love Jack and Sally's romance, even though 90% of that romance is Jack ignoring or actively negging Sally. Um uh, yeah, I, I might have a warped view of, of what love is in movies. <laughs> I also have a well, warped view of love in real life, but that's not my fault, I swear. <laughs> so, I, you know, actually, now that you mention that, this, uh, your distaste for what people might consider generally more healthy relationships um, might actually be a built-in defense mechanism to deal with yeah. what your view of relationships is like from your past experiences. Yep. So it, it's it's like one of those things where, you know, where where the kid's like, oh, I actually hate football, but he just is saying that because he didn't make the team. You know, so he doesn't hate football, but he's using this as a way to defend himself. So it's like, I actually hate healthy relationships, but I don't <laughs> really, I just can't, I just don't know how to have them. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, not not to like really put the, you know, blow up your spot as it were but that that could be related no no absolutely i mean maybe i need a romance that's like a a a french or a mayo chop you know that two things that shouldn't be mixed together but somehow do get mixed together (laughs) (laughs) and and then packaged and sold to the masses yeah i Um, i don't know if i said on the podcast before one of my my favorite relationships i've ever been in uh, with another person was a very long time ago in high school and I look back on it fondly, but most of what we did was yell at each other. <laughs> and um, I, I, I miss it a lot. <laughs> I, I, so I kind of have like a similar, and I'm sure that I mentioned her to you whenever we were around each other, but from undergrad, I had a relationship with a, with a uh, you could call her an older woman. I was in undergrad, she was in grad school. Um, and I what would say most of our... Like 70 year age? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, most of our relationship was, was her either deciding she did want to spend time with me and us having a lot of sex mm, okay. or her deciding that she had, didn't have time for me and not responding to me in any way, shape, or form. Um, and I also, like, fondly remember those days where, in reality, I was, like, neglected and, and you know, yeah. it's, like, emotionally neglected slash even 
potentially kind of abused and and it's like ah you know that's it's like there's still this there's still this part of me that kind of longs for that kind of mistreatment um or that situation where it was like so uh emotionally enthralling sure but sure. it's um that doesn't make it good <laughs> it's more it's it's whirlwindish right i feel like when, oh, yeah, when i think yeah. back on it it's very much like you know it was fast it was it was it was powerful. It like like I said, like a whirlwind. And then you know it's it's now everything's calmed down as we've gotten older, and it's just almost boring to some extent, which is well, also and, very sad. <laughs> uh, well, and, and there's definitely a degree like as I've gotten uh, you know crept towards adulthood. I mean, I'm in my 30s now, which is insane. Um, but I don't feel like it. I feel like I'm a child still. Uh, mm-hmm. But as I've moved towards adulthood, it's like my life has become so much more stable. Because, well, in part, because I had a pretty unstable childhood, um, and there are times where it's like, th- there's a part of me that would that would light things on fire just because the stability is boring. Sure, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. it's like I I don't know how to I don't know how to operate with this much stability. Like I only know how to operate in unstable chaos. Um, and so there's this part of me that's just like, well, I'm either gonna make chaos myself or i'm gonna be useless because i don't know how to do anything here sure sure no i'm Um, totally with you it's it's, i mean i think that essence from both of our childhoods and from other people's that we've we've um you know talked to in our lives uh it 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 created one of my favorite phrases of all time um that i did not coin i unfortunately not unfortunately i heard this from aqua teen hunger force but it fits so (laughs) perfectly well um the phrase we'll burn that bridge when we get to it (laughs) (laughs) sure Oh, it's almost a mod. I should get that tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> and right under that, no regrets. No regrets. Not even a letter. <laughs> um, oh, man. You know what else is really sad? Your wife dying of tuberculosis, okay? I mean, let, It would be if you knew her for more than two weeks. Okay, let... We okay. Let's get past that because I am with you. I, I do love their once again whirlwind relationship. Like I said, that scene with him in the paper airplane and him, you know, building that little strong front thing to use the rubber band to get it up to her. I think that's adorable. I love that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Um, but Good post that, you know, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, if I could make a paper airplane, you know, I. Well, I was about to say that's how I'd like try and you know get people in in my life. With my luck, I'd make a paper airplane and I like playfully throw it at somebody and it would fucking like scar their cornea and i'd go to oh. court or something like that you know Either that or, i mean you, you'd find like the one person that has like a really serious paper airplane related trauma <laughs> in their past and i was like bitten the... by a paper airplane when i was five i never got over it <laughs> so it's like you just scar them even further sure like, oh, yeah exactly know. exactly that's our luck um but with, with with that with their relationship established, um, I I find this part of the movie. I mean, I mentioned the scene where he has to still work, but is crying onto his paper. Um, I am deeply upset, like maybe not on a sad level, but like fundamentally upset by the. Um, Jiro gets a telegram when Kurokawa calls him and says, you know, you have a telegram and it seems to be an emergency. And he's like, can you read it to me? And he goes, Nahoko has had a lo- long hem- hemorrhage or he like can't pronounce the word, you know, and it cuts to her profusely bleeding while holding her face in profile. Like that is just deeply upsetting to me. Um, oh yeah. I, I yeah. like her doubled over like that kills me. Then he has to go see her. He's crying onto his work while, while, while using a slide rule, dude, we didn't. We have to talk about him using a slide rule. What a throwback! I I cannot believe 
that uh, it's probably what me, you, and the eighty-year-old people that we've worked with in academia that know what a slide rule is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have a slide rule. I have no idea how to use it, but I have one. Um, uh, um, but I, it's all of that. Like, you'll catch it. You're beautiful. That kills me. I mean, the ending, I think the ending is very, you know, poignant. I do like the ending, the fact that she chooses to go back to the sanitarium, a uh, sanatorium, sorry, uh, the hospital, basically, um, because she wants Jiro to remember him, remember her as she was. I love that Jiro does not look at his his creation, his plane in the air show fly by him. He looks in the distance. It's almost like the um, I'm sensing something is wrong. I the ending, the last dream sequence where you know Nahoko is there and and the Italian guy says she's been waiting here for you for a very long time. I have to imagine that's a very clear reference to Beatrice at the end of um, Dante Alighieri's uh, you know. The Divine Comedy, the Nine Circles of Hell story, because that's how that ends as well. Um, I think that is absolutely perfect, and I love that line. Like I said, airplanes are beautiful cursed dreams waiting for the sky to swallow them up. Because isn't that what relationships are as well? Aren't relationships uh, like founded on the fact that nobody's immortal? One of you is going to die first, or you might both die at the same time. <laughs> we don't like well, to think about it, but it is 50% a fact. 50% of marriages end in divorce, the rest end in death. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Um I I think it's absolutely uh heartbreaking. I find this movie so heartbreaking. I cry. I li- like this if you cry every time. Every time. E V R Y T I E M. Um to get off the sadness of the movie, maybe, because Ben and I have clearly uh waxed poetic about our lives and our sadness and things like that. Uh one of the positives I think about this movie or positive aspects. The whole thing's positive. I love this movie. Um as sad as it makes me. I think there is a great notion that this movie gets at, that I don't think any other movie really makes me think about. Even movies about, like, aircraft, like The Aviator, you know, Scorsese's The Aviator, things like that. This movie really makes me think about how crazy flight is. J- just hear me out for a second. This is, this is very philosophical, but, you like, flight was always something that people dreamed of, you know? Like, the idea of, like, oh, birds can do it, like, why can't we do it as humans? And and human history throughout, the, what, the 20th century, the 1900s, you get stuff like um, blimps, the Hindenburg disaster, you get the invention of the airplane, you get the, before the Wright brothers, the, the, the guy that nobody remembers because he only flew for, like, two seconds or something like that. Um, you get this whole concept of aerodynamics, you get this revolution in, in the industry of World War One with literal wars being fought in the sky. All of this air travel, all of the ability to flight, the actual concept of drag and lift comes from what Bernoulli's principle that I think Daniel Bernoulli proved about like, you know, hydrodynamics in what the 1600s or something like that. Like there's such a confluence of human history that comes around flight. And it is so baffling to me that literally we have taken things from the earth. And when I say earth, I mean like wood metal, because they talk a lot about German metal planes. We've taken things from the Earth and put them in the sky for the point of getting back to the Earth, if that makes sense. What do you think about air travel or flight in general? Have you ever really thought about it, how kind of weird it is, you know? I I feel like we take it for granted these days because, hell, you and I, I mean, we could book a flight to Costa Rica right now for, what, 200 bucks, I think we proved in a previous episode, Um, and we're not going to think twice about it because we oh, get on a plane and get there, you know? 
Uh, well, Air, Air Flight is fucking crazy that it exists. It's crazy that it's taken so long to, you know, invent, and then we've improved it so quickly. And also the fact that its existence makes us forget, us as humans, forget how big the world really is. What What do you think about that, Ben? <laughs> well, I, I mean, for one, like, I, I definitely think of... Uh, you said something about, like, the... the for the sake of, of going up and then coming back down. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, of course we want to come back down because this is where we want to be. Uh, we only want to be in the air because traveling that way is faster. And mm-hmm. as soon as mag trains uh, beat that, we'll we'll use mag trains instead. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have I have on occasion thought about uh, not, not only how baffling or, or how impactful flight is, but the fact that we have entire industries built around the the mm-hmm. idea of moving people um and and i guess really what i want to come back to is all of this essentially leads me to the point that i can send some, a piece of paper across the country for 59 cents and that's fucking insane right uh, um, right and <laughs> and that like i from anywhere to anywhere in the country for a forever stamp i can send a piece of paper and and flight is a big part of the reason that that's possible so, like, the the systems that have been enabled because of flight that we never think about. Exactly. Because when you, when you drop a letter in the mailbox, you don't, you don't imagine its, its whole route to where it's going. You just put it there, and then it gets to where it's going. Yeah. Might as well teleport. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is very much taken for granted, the in-between. And, and that is something that uh, I, I guess, you know, it, it's amazing that we did flight, but it's amazing that, that we were able to build systems and become, like, a functioning society uh, and flight helped us get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I guess it's also amazing, or or I should say it's it's really impactful that without humans as a collective, we can't communicate that that far. Um, and that's something that we take for granted every day. And I mean, me and you, we're half a country apart, and we're talking on the internet right exactly. now. Exactly. Yep, yep. It's baffling. I think, you know, it's, it's like I said, something you take for granted, but when you actually think about it, it's like how, like, it's almost, you know, uh, it, it defies imagination that it exists in some weird way. Uh, absolutely. It's, I mean, in a vacuum, uh, let's say birds and such don't exist. Uh, when people are thinking, like, how can we travel quickly? Uh, is their first bet go into the air where there's no obstacles? Or is their first bet dig a tunnel mm-hmm. where there's no obstacles? And the answer is, uh, I think it's unclear. And if you yeah. perhaps knew of animals that tunneled, but didn't know of animals that flew, perhaps tunneling is the way you would think that you should go. Sure, sure. Uh, and it's really just because birds exist that that we have planes at all. Yeah, that, you know, we we were able to see it and say, well, well, the fuck can't we do that, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> uh, well, and that's like, the you know, the one thing humans are really good at, um, that kind of jealousy. Don't tell me no, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like... You know, we see a tiger's claws, we make a garden tool. Yep, somebody we, sees a fish, just... and they go, well, fuck you, I'll go underwater too, son of a bitch, you know? That's I'll right. get the bends while doing it. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, no, I, I think that, that brings another thing that I think is so thematically important about this movie, and this is something I didn't really pick up on until this last viewing, is that there's so much implicitly in this movie, I think about the elements of course, like the like land, sea, and air, and then you, if you want to throw in fire and stuff like that, I think there's such an interplay, a great interplay between elements in this movie. The first instance of it is when the earthquake hits, when Jiro is young and, and first meets um, Nahoko on the, the train. Like, when the earthquake scene happens, the 
the buildings and the land move like waves. They're animated like waves. And it's, it's a, that's a great scene. That's a very harrowing scene. I love the way that so much detail is put into those buildings crumbling, the fires coming out of it, that type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, the, the earthquake makes the land move like the sea. But then in the remnants it creates fires. And that, of course, is probably more due to the man-made infrastructure and things like that. But those infrastructure came from elements from the earth. Like I said, airplanes are made of elements from the earth to fly and move so defiantly above it. Um, I think there's uh, something I noticed on this viewing. There's every time a plane crashes, maybe not every time, but the two big times a plane crashes during a test flight or something, when they go and look at the wreckage, it's raining. And there's such a thing where it's like, oh, we are seeing something that we so hubristically as humans made to defy physics and it crashed, and now literally the heavens are dropping water on us. Like, it's showing us that we can still make things fall. Like, there's such a notion about, like, I'm not saying God or religion or anything like that, but the Earth as a force and its climate and weather and elements as a force is beating down the human characters in this movie. Did, did you pick up any of that, or is what I'm saying making sense? Uh, yeah, definitely with the, with the rain. I mean, to, there's also the imagery of, like, uh, rain and tears like there, to some yes. degree there's like this sorrow about the failure um, and you could def- I, I definitely kind of picked up on, on it from that perspective but I, I, I didn't think about this until you started bringing it up there's, there's also and um, I actually have a friend who's a pilot so I, I, I pr- pretty often hear him say about talk about this okay when he was uh, you know flying smaller planes um, weather was a very big determining factor on whether or not he could fly sure sure um it's like whereas a lot of our you know we we see it with our with our big airliners too but it takes a lot worse weather to ground them than it does to ground these the planes that these people are flying in the very early days um and so like not only do we have the symbolism of of like some amount of sadness coming from the heavens at the failure but we also have uh, a symbolism of no matter what you do, you can't control the weather. Um, mm. And th- this is the one thing that even if you did succeed, could still put you on the ground. And I, I hadn't considered that part of it. That's so, so wildly fascinating to me, you know, is that we can do so much and we have done so much as a species with inventions, with, um, you know, convincing ourselves that the world is not a big place, even though it really goddamn is. Oh, and yeah. at the same time, the world can still be like, you know, I mean, earlier today, literally earlier today, I was like, okay, I got to take my trash out, you know, I get my trash bag out of the out of the can, you know, I tie it up, you know, that type of thing, open my door, it's raining, I say, okay, this will wait till later. The, the, the earth literally stopped me from doing what I wanted to do that easily. <laughs> that is fascinating <laughs> to me. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, look at baseball games, right? Like that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but don't look at football because they will play in any weather. Oh God, they'll play in the snow and shit like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. they they will not only play in the snow; they will have commentators talk about the statistics of how many times p- game uh, teams have won in the snow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, while wearing yellow cleats uh, in the northeastern hemisphere, or 
uh, octosphere or whatever it would be, you know. That, uh, football stats are fucking stupid to me. They do such granularity. Um, I say stupid in the sense that it's way too detailed. Uh, not stupid in that you shouldn't think of those statistics. Um, let's talk about, since we're here, Ben, for this series, let's talk about the animation. Because, I, I mean, we have to get to it with Hayao Miyazaki. Um, f- please feel free to comment on any um, Mayo stirred mustard mayonnaise uh, movie you've seen in the past, but this one, of course, I think is uh, the one we're focusing on. But Spirited Away is a big one for me. What utter beauty this guy and his team can create with hand drawn animation! It is unbelievably detailed, and I don't think like not a single corner is cut. Maybe compare this to um, Under the Red Hood from a few weeks back where, you know, you have the thing of them of them saying, like, oh, we'll just reuse some buildings. Like, the buildings look the same in the background because it's cheap or whatever. Or they'll just basically, you know, scratch a pencil to make something look like it's foggy in the distance or something like that. Nothing like that here. I think everything is so incredibly detailed. It's, it's just a sight to behold how much one person can make him, him and his team of animators can care so much about every single frame in an animated film, right? Uh, yeah, the, the care definitely comes through in this movie. Um, you can see it not only in the beauty of the scenery, which is, which is phenomenally rendered, um, but also in the fluidity of the animation yes. itself. The motion um, blur. When we get shots of people flying airplanes, they actually hmm. animate the motion blur and stuff like that. Like, God, oh. like, remember Under the Red Hood when Batman was flying his bat plane and it was just clearly CGI and garbage, which we liked and had a very important purpose. You know, go listen to that discussion. But, like, this is just like, no, we need we need to do the motion blur. We need to literally try and recreate what the human eye would see in reality through our drawings. And that's beautiful. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, this is, this is a part of the conversation where we talk about what animation brought to this film. Yes. That that real life, that the real life medium maybe wouldn't have or, or would have had a harder time with or it would have looked worse or whatever, and I think that that is realized incredibly well in the first dream scene mm. with with Caproni. Yeah, yeah. Is that his name? Yeah, the, Caproni. The, the, yep. the Jabroni. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Japanese boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, just the the moment where like he's flying by in the plane and they're talking to each other. Obviously, not something that you can do easily in real life. But then to push it past that, uh, Jabroni is hanging from the plane and he just like starts kicking his legs so that he's running as fast as the plane is flying. Again, something that we can't do or make look good in real life. Um, And then he like hits the ground running and catches up to or maybe the Japanese boy catches up to him. But matching uh, the speed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like. Just that whole bit, and then, you know, they're, uh, I'll save some of it for you, but if you want to talk about, like, his new plane design and, and how they interact with that, like, this dream. Oh, yeah. This yeah. dream sequence really takes um, advantage of the fact that it's animated. I think uh, there's a later dream sequence as well when um, he creates the, uh, or the Caproni, Jabroni. Um, mayo stirred mustard and his Jabroni um, creates the, uh, the, plane with all the people on it he's like this is my team that made this plane we're all celebrating that type of thing and you get stuff of like there's so many people on this plane that the walls are literally bulging out but the walls are supposed to be made of steel and you know it's just like so emphatically fantastical because it's a dream sequence but also because it's carrying meaning and stuff like that um i love all that stuff and i mean also i'm glad you brought up the idea of like what if this was in live action 
because this is a very grounded movie. It, it's probably the most grounded um, Hayao Miyazaki movie, you know, because it's like you think of Spirited Away. N- nobody looks like Yubaba, the witch who runs the bathhouse. Like, she's just a head with a little body, and the head is very wrinkly and gigantic, you know? It's like you, that, that literally can't happen. And you have, you know, no face and stuff like that. That You, you cannot do that in live action. Um, oh, God, the stink spirit as well. That That is so wildly utterly indescribable unless you do it in animation um but this movie i think this being so grounded i'm thinking of the scene where nahoko's umbrella blows away in the wind and uh jiro has to catch it i think that it comes across as so naturalistic it comes across as like oh the wind is just really strong in this scene or today and jiro is you know trying to hold on he's like bum get it's like getting blown away you know and it it comes across as like you've seen it in looney tunes before when like what elmer fudd or daffy duck has an umbrella and it's and it's really messing him up or something like that but here it comes across so naturalistic if this was live action you'd be like, okay, I can tell that there's just, like, a big fan just off camera, you know? Like, yeah. this, or maybe it's not even a big fan. Maybe, you know, it's just enough to get the umbrella moving and the uh, the actor's hair flowing and you're seeing them struggle and, and literally acting type of thing. But for mm-hmm. there's this way of animation that Hayao Miyazaki creates the scene where it's like, no, the characters aren't acting like it's windy. The characters are literally in the windiness. Because they're drawn to be that way. They're created to be that way. Um, there's also a great reaction shot when Jiro's trying to catch the umbrella. It cuts back to Nahoko at her um, easel when she's painting. And it's just her like upper body, her torso, and her face. And she's holding onto her hat. And she smiles as she sees this man before I think she really knows it's Jiro. Um, trying to catch the umbrella. And there's just so much emotion in the facial expressions. There's so much control over what these characters can do or how they can feel. Um, that, you know, you'd be left up in live action, it would be left up more to the actual actors. And I know we said that before, you know, acting is reacting, acting is choices, that type of thing. But when you animate people, especially real people like Jiro and Nahoko and all these characters in, in The Wind Rises, you get to control everything about them. And the limitations of what they convey to the audience is literally your own hand. And mm-hmm. Hayao Miyazaki goes, well, then there's no limit. Like, if I can do it, I'm going to do it. And that's right. just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, you're not limited by their range of emotion. You're limited by what, really, just what you want to display is is the limiting factor. And mm-hmm. that's not even, I, I think if we were to really dig into the definition of a limit, we would say that's probably not a limiting factor. You know, what you want is, that's what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, and I yeah. think there's and nothing, almost nothing in the way exactly. uh, with animation. And I appreciate, I think, one of the hallmarks of Hayao Miyazaki in all his movies is that, you know, big, sweeping shots of a lot going on. Now, in this movie, I'm thinking of, like, that that dream sequence, all the people on the plane, you know, bunch of people crammed into places, uh, spirited away, of course, when you get, like, the exterior bathhouse shots, when you get the the shots of the bathhouse, you know, all the tubs inside, like, the big, wide-angle shots and stuff like that. Even in, um, you know, Princess Mononoke with all the, the weird tentacle boars and stuff like that. Every It's a hallmark of Miyazaki. If he wants to give you an image, he's going to make sure he gives you the whole image. And it's so amazing that you can, like, in the earthquake sequence of um, uh, The Wind Rises. Like, take, for example, after the earthquake kind of subsides, before the aftershock comes, um, all the people are kind of running from the train because they they like, the boiler's going to explode. You could freeze frame that. There's not a single person or object that is not fully detailed in that shot. 
they don't mm-hmm. cut corners. Where, for example, not that it's a bad thing, uh, it's a more of an um, American thing, or maybe more of a cultural thing. If we freeze-framed a shot in, say, Under the Red Hood, where, you know, maybe a building blows up, and then there's a shot of, like, you know, oh, here's the top of the building blowing up, and you see a lot of people on the ground, like, watching it or something. If you freeze-frame that, you'd be like, those aren't faces. Like, they just put two dots in a line, you know? They didn't put the emphasis to actually make them people. They just made them look like people when you glance over it, that type of thing. But Mm. Hayao Miyazaki does this thing where he puts all the detail into everything, even it's not where the eye is drawn to. Like, if the eye is drawn to something in a lot of animated features, and looking at you, Disney and Pixar again, you know where the eye is drawn to. You might cut corners on all the peripheral stuff to save time, to save money, because who's going to look at that? Hayao Miyazaki goes, no, I'm painting an image. Every frame is a painting. I'm making sure that everything is as detailed as possible. And that is wonderful. And that makes all these movies worth rewatching. Like, I swear, I've, I mean, I've seen Spirited Away probably uh, 60 million times, you know? It's one of the movies that I've, if I want to watch something, I'll just put it on. There's been moments in Spirited Away where I'll literally watch like half an hour just looking at like the top right corner. And there's never a moment where you don't get detail, where you don't get something going on. Even if your eye is not drawn there, he puts in the time and puts in the animation work to make sure everything has character and essence and animation. It's, it's care. It, it's the thing that, you know, maybe what we were saying before is that, you know, the passion and love for these things get beaten out of us over here in America. Somehow it never got beaten out of Miyazaki, and he makes sure everything has that care and passion. And I think, you know, it, it makes him one of the better filmmakers because of that. Um, I mean— and. Obviously, I don't know his his life. Um, He's an incredibly kind of... staunch and weird person. Um, it, I think it's on HBO. The documentary about him is called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. It is so kind of crazy that his workers see him as, like, an angry boss type of thing. Like, he is, oh. he is a very, very detail-oriented and aggressive person. <laughs> I, it, it, his love and detail almost puts me in the mindset of somebody who found this late in life mm, um okay and that's that's what i was saying i don't know i mean and it's not the only way to, to have this this kind of love for the detail at this point in the in the process but when you've spent your whole life not doing it and then you find it and realize it's what your life was meant for then it's like bam like i'm gonna put everything in Abs- absolutely okay I'm, I'm glad we got to this because i think i've mentioned this story to you before ben i don't remember where it was um but it's a it's a fucking unreal story that gets at the idea that you know there's clearly cultural differences between us over here in america and over there in japan i specifically about hayao miyazaki um it's one of the things that is uh, the strangest thing in existence to, to me growing up in america and i think to everybody who's about to hear this um for years years after my neighbor totoro came out people wanted to license it to make merchandise you know um, I think, what, Totoro was 94, 95, one of those two years. Um, and people were like, you know, I, I really want to make Totoro merchandise because Totoro is a big, fluffy creature that every kid would want, you know, that type of thing. Um, right. And, and so is, you know, um, from Nausicaa and the Valley of Wind, there's a few characters in there that are very cute and cuddly, that type of thing. Um, I think that was 90, uh, 1990. Um, but there was this thing that Miyazaki, being the founder uh, and, and owner of, of um, Studio Ghibli, he was always kind of like, no, 
Like, no, you can't make merchandise. You know, it's like that. This is this is my product. I, I made it the way I wanted to. Um, I don't want to bastardize it with merchandise. It took until I think like 1999 or 2000 when someone came to him with a Totoro plush doll that was so finely crafted and in Miyazaki's words from one of the interviews I've read with him what showed the same amount of care that he put into his animation that they put into this doll that he said okay you can sell this you can make this merchandise but he put the stipulation since it was going to be under Studio Ghibli of course um they were going to be selling this merchandise he said we can only sell as much merchandise to make X dollars a year. And I'm going to throw, I don't know the exact number, but let's say 10 million. He's like, we can never make more than $10 million a year in merchandise. Fucking wild, right? Yeah, that's Talk, insane. That's yeah, not American. Not American at all. And he was like, he's like, we can't, you know, whatever his, his, you know, the translation was something like, you know, we don't want to dilute the market. We don't want to uh, saturate the market. I mean, that type of thing. Um, we don't want to like reduce the validity of this product. You know, we can only sell this much. In the mid-2000s, I think late 2000s, maybe 2009, 2010, it turned out that a branch of Studio Ghibli was going against his wishes and was selling more merchandise than his allotted limit. And they were making a lot more because fucking everybody wants a Totoro plush. Everybody wants a fucking no-face, you know, action figure. Um, everybody wants the um, the dragon from uh, Spirited Away, you know, or the the guy in dragon form, that type of thing. It's a it's, Studio Ghibli movies, Hayao Miyazaki movies are very marketable. You know, he has a lot of great characters and stuff like that, and people want to buy it. They were going over his allotted limit for like a few years. Hayao Miyazaki found out about this. They were trying to keep it from him. He found out about it. He fired the entire Studio Ghibli marketing and merchandising team and rehired people. Wow. That is the man we're dealing with over there. And here's the thing. I don't understand it. It's, it's, a, it's a very anti, or maybe not anti, but different capitalistic view than you or I or anybody in the American system would ever have. But man, I'm kind of happy that someone like that exists. Talk about sticking to your beliefs, right? <laughs> that's yeah, a I mean, constitution that's, right there. <laughs> that kind of dedication is is pretty insane. Um, it's it's not it does not fit into the to the American idea of capitalism exactly, exactly. which is essentially profits above all else, right? And and, I, and growth above all else, also. Yes. you know, and, yeah. You know, I don't want to get on this like high horse and, and act like I hate capitalism or anything because I don't. Um, but I do think that capitalism lends itself to losing sight of the mission uh, of a company. So, Definitely. you know, there, there's like I, – I'm, I'm reminded of like an episode of Shark Tank where this farmer dude created this little thing that you put around your trees. Uh, it's like protects them from weather or oh, something. Oh, yeah. I've seen that one. Okay, yeah. And, and then, you know, they were like, how much are you selling these for? And he was like, I don't know. I was throwing out some numbers. They were like $2 or whatever. Yeah, and he's basically then, like, I just want farmers to have this, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they were like, well, why don't you sell them for $8 a piece? And he was like, because farmers can't afford that. And they were like, I don't understand. <laughs> don't, exactly, like, what, exactly. What did you just say to me? Well, let's be fair. Uh, all the sharks said, well, you should be making more money. And Lori Grenier was there, you know, picking her nose and going, I don't know what I'm talking. What's a farmer? Because Lori Grenier's a fucking moron on that show. Um, well, yeah, that's sure. a story for another time. <laughs> I actually think that's on a rant episode of ours. So that might be out already. Lori Grenier is a. I'm sure she's a smart businesswoman when it comes to her field, but man, she comes across as a moron on Shark Tank. <laughs> there you go. 
No, but that that's that's right. And you know, I think there is like you said, not to get on the high horse, it it's not really being, you know, better than anybody. It's that we need those people. There are some people who go like this invention's so important, it just needs to be out there because it's good. And I I you know, maybe that inventions those types of inventions don't come around a lot often these days, a lot more at all really these days because really we're just refining inventions at this point like uh that's that's a that's a big grand scale discussion we could probably have but it's always refreshing to see somebody go it's like no this is important it's not that how much money can i make from it it's how can i impact the world right got a lot of respect Um, for that got a lot of respect for that certainly and that's that's something like i said that we just don't we don't we don't see it stick around uh as often here because there's Mm -hmm. so much emphasis on on the money side of it. Um, and, you know, like I said, I I am not bashing capitalism in any way. I think capitalism is a very useful t- tool, I guess. Sure, but, sure. But um, You know what I do want to bash capitalism about for a second? What's that? Fucking, next time, Ben and the good Christian cinema audience, next time you go into a grocery store, look at how many fucking varieties of yogurt there are. There's way too many varieties of yogurt. Not only brands, not only flavors, but sizes. Dude, it's a it's an atrocity. It is. I hate it. I don't eat yogurt because I think Ben knows I'm allergic to milk. Um, I also think yogurt is a weird consistency. The times I have had it, but dude, next time you go to your grocery store, also maybe another example, go to your soda aisle. There's an aisle. There's an aisle of fifty different flavors of Coca Cola, fifty different flavors of Pepsi. Fucking like. I say scorched earth, burn it all. Let's go back to two flavors. Come on, okay? Maybe maybe five for yogurt, because some people like banana, but I'm also allergic to bananas. But, dude, next time you go to your fucking grocery store, look at the yogurt section. Look at the yogurt section, and don't tell me you're disgusted by the fucking 18 thin shelves they have in that cooler and all the different flavors and Chobani fruit on the bottom. Chobani Flip cup, yo play flip cup, yo play fruit on the go fuck yourself. You know, I, I, I've been really angry about yogurt for the last few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, I couldn't tell. Um, <laughs> um, no, we, I, I mean, why don't we get eighteen shelves of mayo chup when we got eighteen shelves of yogurt? <laughs> well, it's it's coming. They're moving that way, right? Um, but but that is, I mean. That kind of touches on your idea that, that we're not inventing new things so much as we're just modifying inventions. This is what um, the cinema audience lives for. Just under two hours in, Rob goes on a yogurt rant. <laughs> but it, to some it. degree, um, well, for one, creation is, is always harder than, than beautification Definitely. or modification. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but to another degree, like, humans have been around a while, and we've been inventing stuff a while. And uh, unless there's new problems, don't expect new inventions, um, <laughs> because that's what inventions are for, really, yeah. is to solve problems. Exactly. Um, and, you know, if that problem is that there's not enough bananas in your yogurt or that your fruit was too much at the top um, and not enough <laughs> at the bottom of your yogurt, like that's, you know, that I guess that's the point we're getting where like life has been made so easy um, that we lack some of the motivating factors that lead to uh, ingenuity. Sure, sure. It it just becomes about variety and satisfying desire, 
you know? Right. Uh, yeah, it's uh, very much, you know, feed me the grape. God, I'm while, sure while it exists. If it doesn't exist, the moment I say it, someone's going to put it out there. There's got to be a yogurt out there, like Chobani, oops, all fruit, and it's just a fucking jar of sliced strawberries, you know? Like, what the fuck? And they're going to be like, it's yogurt. And it's like, it's not yogurt. You just cut up a strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> you just put it in the yogurt cup, which is horrible for the environment. Right? Oh, my God. Um, I, I, I actually do really like that joke. I think it was cereal did it first. The uh, oops, uh, all, oops, all berries. Oops, all berries. Oops, all marshmallows. I think what Lucky Charms did that or something. Uh, uh, um, it was actually Captain Crunch. They did. Oh, it was, all OK. Berries. OK. Oops, all berries. Um, we should do an episode like that. I, oops, all rants. That should be. Oh, <laughs> I love that. I love the title. That's how you get rants, because that us doing this podcast is literally how you get rants, you know. But oh, OK, the next time I release one of those on Patreon, I might want to call it. Oops, all rants. No, oops, <laughs> all tangents. That's a good one. There you go. Yeah, oops, all tangents. <laughs> oops, um, all tangents. <laughs> ben and that I might sat be what down. This episode's called actually. Hey. Hey, our first hour was pretty pretty sad about our lives. <laughs> Oops, all I mean, that sadness. Was still, that was still tangents. Of, uh, you know, it was, it was not. I'm not saying it was not related to the movie, but it was pretty indirectly related to the movie. <laughs> that that I really like that idea. Oops, all tangents. That's a really funny name. <laughs> but yeah, man. I mean, that's for one. You gotta you gotta wonder like what kind of maniac doesn't want those yellow things in uh, in their cereal. Uh, right, oh, so, right. <laughs> so we actually did this thing at work once. We had we had these uh, this kind of competition where we were tasked with like coming up with a little um, a little project, and we we had to have like a deliverable by the end of the week. Okay. Um, and we we had to come up with team names, and for whatever reason, like one of the guys that I that I work with, he he's kind of a he's, he's a goober, if you will. <laughs> sure. And, uh, sure. And, like he like one time we he was asking us like uh, an icebreaker question and what he asked us was like how we heated our homes when we were children mm-hmm. um and and so i got to tell my my favorite story about how uh we used to light fires and trash cans in our living room <laughs> um okay nice but but anyway so he was like you guys got to come up with the names and and the names you're you're allowed to use our uh food and drinks and like that was it i okay. think he might have even specified cereals mm-hmm. and drinks mm-hmm. um and so being that i love dr pepper and that i am a doctor um i'm and i mixed two of them uh, and my my team was dr pebbles we were fruity pebbles and dr pepper nice but there was another team that had um all of the berries that work in our company were on the same team and uh, the joke that they should be called "Oops, all berries" um, was was definitely definitely thrown around. Right on, right on. I like that. I like that. "Oops, all blank" is a great like template. You know, just period. That's a great template to call something. I think. Yeah, there you go. I, so, I like the fact tangents. of including including "Oops," like you know, it was a mistake, but it clearly was not. You know. So yeah, it's like I <laughs> I put I edited and put this episode out. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's no oops about it. What if we did like oops all snacks and it was just an hour of us talking about the restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> oops, the actual board meeting. Oops, no movie, you know, something like that, yeah. <laughs> oh god, that's good. That's good. Well, I mean, Ben, with all that being said, speaking of the restaurant, was there anything else you wanted to mention about um mayo mustard ANA's uh Heinz or uh the wind rises? Oh, I, uh. I guess maybe while you think on that, um just wanted to mention, I mean, there's not really much we can say about it, but um I love the music in this movie. Love the oh, music yeah. in this movie. It it's um kind of switches between this almost like, you know, 
Parisian uh, accordionist version, like happy-go-lucky music with this classical suspense-driven music, you know, depending on the emotion of the scene. Like, I love the use of the accordion in this. Um, it's, it's just great. It adds so much to the depth of, of, of something animated, which is very much sound-based. Oh, and I also guess, and speaking of sound, we should mention a little little play into what, we always, what we've done. I think we didn't do it in uh, Ghost in the Shell because... We didn't really know too many people about him. Um, did you watch the sub or the dub of this movie? Uh, I watched the dub. Okay. That was the, the default play uh, mode on, I believe, HBO Max. Yes, this is on HBO Max, yes. Um, I, I uh, watched it with the dub for the first time ever as well. Um, I was pretty much fine with all the voice performances. I think Miyazaki movies are the ones where I'm more uh, for the subs, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, uh, Chihiro in Spirited Away in the English version is the first one I saw. Deve Chase is the voice of um, uh, Chihiro. And uh, I, I actually prefer the English version audio of Spirited Away to the Japanese version solely because of the scene where she goes to the pig pen and sees her parents. And that wonderful line that Deve Chase delivers where she goes, you know, Mom and Dad, I'm going to get you out of here, but don't, you, don't eat anything else or they're going to get fatter and they're going to eat you. And she runs out crying. You know, it's fantastic. Um, I was fine with this. I did have some problems. I think my least favorite thing in this movie, voice performance-wise, is uh, Jiro's friend, uh, Kiro Hanjo. It is voiced by John Krasinski, you know, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's not really doing much. It just sounds like he's doing Jim from The Office to me. I don't know. Did you pick up on that at all? Or did you, did you realize uh, it was him, like, immediately? I no, I mean, I realize the voice was familiar okay. immediately, but I did have to look it up because I it's been a while since I've sure. Um, well, that, not to say that I haven't watched anything with John Krasinski in it in a while because I watched A Quiet Place recently, but he doesn't really talk in that movie. So <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> so it's been a while since I've heard his voice. I also watched Where the Millers recently, and in that first scene or the first couple scenes where Jason Sudeikis looks like a drug dealer, mm-hmm. he looks so much like John Krasinski. It's ridiculous, right? He does, and then, he does. And yeah. then he cuts his hair, and I'm like, oh, it's Jason Sudeikis again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely, anyway, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that was my biggest problem. I didn't really like John Krasinski in that role. I think when he is doing something a little different from his regular voice doesn't fit really well. Um, that, But that, I mean, Studio Ghibli movies in America get distributed by Disney, so um, that's just their, their just distribution deal. Um, when... They get distributed by Disney. Disney gets rights over how to dub it, and that's why a lot of the English dubs of Studio Ghibli movies have a lot of famous people in it. So I think one of the worst ones is uh, Howl in Howl's Moving Castle in the American version is Christian Bale, and Christian Bale is a horrible voice actor because Christian Bale can do his regular English accent or Batman. Yes, exactly. Ben knows what I'm talking about. Um, So Disney is more into hiring famous people to do the voices than they are hiring people suited to do the voices um very famously i mean i mentioned devay chase which is a a reason uh, i mean it's one of the better things but disney hired devay chase to do the voice of hero and spirited away because devay chase is the voice of lilo from lilo and stitch um and it's kind of like oh well little girl in that movie little girl in this movie um uh, joseph gordon levitt is jiro in the dub of this movie i think he's fine i don't really love joseph joseph gordon levitt as an actor in general i mean unfortunately joseph gordon levitt is my biggest problem with don john and he's kind of the deciding factor of don john um him doing that remember don john him doing that accent my girl my pawn my pad i 
I like to fuck, you know, that type of thing. And it's like, calm down, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, everything else in that movie is fine. And, and I think, I, I haven't seen it in a while, but it's like, um, you and me liking Don John, we are in the minority there. A lot of people hate Don John, unfortunately. Oh, okay. um, okay. But, dude, I will always mention, we, we have to talk about Don John one day, if not for anything but that fucking scene when he's like, yo, I'm going to go buy some Swiffers, bitch. I'll be right back. And Scarlett Johansson goes, what, what, why are you buying mops? And they have, remember that scene where they had the argument in the grocery store? And he's like, because I like to clean my apartment. She's like, don't talk to me about cleaning. It's not manly. And we're like, this is fucking awesome. Like, this is a real moment of emotion, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, I, I do remember That's a that. fantastic scene. Uh, Scarlett Johansson is also great in that movie. And she has a mm-hmm. wonderful Bronx accent, which I am way too partial to. Um, speaking of John Krasinski and A Quiet Place, uh, the grown-up voice of Nahoko in this movie is Emily Blunt, who is John Krasinski's real-life wife and uh, the woman in A Quiet Place. Um, the, the mother or the wife in Quiet Place. Um, I've only seen the first Quiet Place. Did you see part two at all? I have, I have seen part two, Okay, yeah. okay. I hated I, the first one so much, there was no way I was going to see the second one. Oh, really? I I'm, despised I, the first movie. I liked it quite a bit, actually. Okay, okay. That might have to be a Patreon thing. Um, I, I literally spent most of the time watching the first Quiet Place going, if the waterfall is the safest place in the universe, why don't you go don't fucking live next to the waterfall? Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, the whole giving birth scene from Emily Blunt was yeah. the stupidest thing to me. Um, but that, like we said, we can talk about that. Um, the other voice performance that I, I... Not that I disliked it. I found it distracting, but it's more because I know the voice actor or the voice is so distinguishable. Um, Castorp is what his name is, Mr. Castorp, the guy with the huge nose at the hotel who talks yeah. to Jiro about the... Is, um, I was going to ask you about that. Was that like a racist Jew thing? or like Because <laughs> like, he has a gigantic nose. Yes, it, I, I think that's a, an artistic choice because Hayao Miyazaki usually does big noses on some characters in his movies. Um, okay. From what I read in my research, Mr. Castorp was actually based off of a colleague of Miyazaki's from Studio Ghibli in the 90s. So maybe he embellished the nose somewhat, but apparently he worked with someone who has a big nose. Um, But the voice actor is Werner Herzog, the famous documentarian, um, who literally has one of the most unique voices in the planet, and he's not doing anything but his voice in this movie. And it's just kind of weird for, you know, when when if you know Werner Herzog, or you know, know, like I've seen a lot of his movies and stuff like that, you just listen to that, actor or that performance and you're like this is just Werner Herzog like like come on you know you're not doing anything um mm-hmm. I I do have to say I probably one of my favorite voice acting performances in the movie is Mr. Kurakawa Mr. Kurakawa is Martin Short Martin Short the comedian he's doing this gruff oh, thing wow. you know like um I need your plans in the office now and get on the ASAP everybody else back to work you know it's very it's like he's not you don't think it's Martin Short until you look it up no. that type of thing yeah, no, he's um, definitely actually doing voice acting yeah and I love that and I, I also like I mentioned I love how you know Mr. Kurokawa becomes like such a good friend to Jiro you know doing the officiating uh, the witnessing for the wedding at the end of the movie um, mm. hiding him from the secret police like really caring about him even if it is through the employer employee lens they do become friends I love that the other voice acting performance that I was so so into it's a very minor character we haven't mentioned uh kinu the uh jiro's sister is voiced by may whitman and may whitman has been a tv actor i, I think her she name was, was kyo okay oh it, it, i i think it sounds it sounds like kyle in the movie the subtitles said k-a-y-o okay okay i think i got it from wikipedia so i might have been looking at like the 
um, Japanese version because I know they okay. changed things yeah. a little bit. But but Mae Whitman does the um, the English voice for Jiro's sister, and she's great. I mean, Mae Whitman, Whitman, I don't know from a lot of things. I think she's like American Horror Story. She was in one of those seasons. She's in some TV show about like people like doing a robbery or something. It's called like Bad Girls or something like that. Not Bad Girls Club, the E show from the early 2000s that I watch religiously, um, which we've said many times that I shouldn't tell people, but I keep telling everybody. Um, she's great. I love Jiro's sister. You know, I love that, you know, even though she's not a main character, I love the little arc in the background where, you know, she's talking to Jiro and it's like, what can I, why can't I come with you and go to medical school? Like, I have dreams just like you do, but father won't let me. And then when she comes back to meet, you know, Nahoko after they uh, get engaged, Jiro and her get engaged, she's like, I finished medical school. And, and, and Nahoko says she wants me to be her doctor. And I'm like, that's such a nice touch. I'm glad she has a happy story in the background. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's great. So yeah, okay. The uh, the music and the voice acting we had to mention. I'm glad we got to it. Um, oh, I should also mention uh, Caproni or sorry, uh, Jabroni. M- Mustard Jabroni. Yes, yep. um, is Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci is a great actor. Uh, very recently, I think last year it came out that he battled with cancer for a while. I don't think he's in remission, and we're glad to have him with us. Uh, he's a fantastic actor. I love seeing him in anything. Um, he's I'm pretty sure he's in one episode of Monk. I just don't remember which one. I have to rewatch it. So, Ben, with that being said, anything else you wanted to highlight about um, mayo-stirred mustard mayonnaise? Uh, is the Hayo going to expire first or the Miyazaki going to expire first? <laughs> the, the wind barely rose at all in this movie. That's I, a huge complaint. The wind, is, the wind is pretty strong in this movie. No, I agree, but it was strong the whole time. Never rose. Okay. No okay. Rising so it just it, it just, just stayed at a strong level. The, that they, type of yeah, thing. Yeah, they should have just been like the wind is important to the story. Would, like that's what the movie should have been called. Would you would you say? And I'm going to go to limb here because I think you're going to remember what I'm talking about. Would you say the hawk was out in this movie? Uh, <laughs> would I say that? No. Would some people say it? Yes. Uh, but we don't want them to because that's a that's right. stupid fucking saying. <laughs> Looking at, looking at, we just disenfranchised everybody from Pittsburgh. Um, was Yin's Hawk out this movie? I mean, okay, okay, we'll get off that real quick. Um, well, with that being said, are you ready for our questions? Ready. Okay. Well, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the first to say it. I love this movie so goddamn much. I mean, uh, it's a, it's a five star for me. It's, it's a five star in Letterboxd. My, my review was literally just the line, "You'll catch it. You're beautiful." That's how much I love this movie. I, I think I was crying onto my phone. I was trying to write my review, so I couldn't say anything more. Um, but cinematography, no. Like, there, there's nothing odd about this. This is right in Miyazaki's wheelhouse. This is a grounded animated movie. I don't think it's doing anything outrageous in the animated, you know, field or, or art form to make it a cinematography or anything like that. So I have to say no. Uh, for Late Night, though, I have a, I think I have an answer that I haven't used in a while, but uh, it's one I used maybe a few years ago, and I think it's one I always keep in my back pocket. Um, my Late Night answer is this is a date night late night for sure. Like, don't watch this with your, like, you know, if Ben, you and I were hanging out and we watched this, you'd be like, Rob, what the fuck did you make me watch this, you know? We watched it for this podcast, of course, but I'm like, if I'm hanging out with, like, Justin or I'm hanging out, you know, with, like, my, my guy friends, they'd be like, Rob, what the fuck did you make us watch this type of thing? Two hours of this, this like, romance and, and World War II plane drama, but date night, late night? Hell yeah. I think this is romantic enough for me, as we talked about at the start, that if you're trying to woo somebody, 
you maybe want to uh, get in a little emotional headspace, I think this movie is perfect for it. So I guess that falls in the category of know your audience, but I'm going no to Cinemodities and Date Night Late Night for sure for Late Night. What do you think, Ben? No to Cinemodities, definitely. Um, I'm probably going to go with... There are plenty of other movies I would pick before this one for a late night movie. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, like I said, it's not my cup of uh, mustard mayonnaise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's like this is a peek behind the curtain. Ben and I did not plan that at all. We just started talking <laughs> and it hit and we just ran with it. So if you didn't like that running joke this episode, sorry, everybody. We just thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I, if I had the the right dish, would I pour some mustard mayonnaise on it? Maybe, uh, but I'm not just going to drink it right out of the bottle. Is what I'm trying to say. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, if that's a good point, if you drink any condiment right out of the bottle, you might be a little weird. I mean, yeah. ranch is the closest one because I've seen YouTube videos of people chugging ranch. They usually end in vomiting, but yeah. I've seen that more. Ah, oh, God, like. Not even combined, but like ketchup? Who's chugging ketchup? Come on, you know? I think it's the thickness of condiments, right? Uh, well, I know maple syrup chugging in, in uh, Super Troopers is like a... Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. Like a, that's like actually a real thing, and it's incredibly disgusting. Dude, I was in, in my undergrad. So before I knew you, Ben, I was in somebody's apartment. It was like a, a, a five-person apartment, and we were all hanging out in like the kitchen, living room type of thing. And for some reason, it came up where somebody was like, oh, let's talk about chugging maple syrup, you know? Like, that idea came up. And they had some maple syrup, and this one guy, um, I won't name names, but he is featured on one of um, my band's music and in Spirity Complex. Um, he has a little voice clip that I recorded from we put in there. He was like, I'll do it. He's like, fuck it, I'll do it. Give me the maple syrup bottle, you know? And maple, it wasn't like a big maple syrup bottle. It was one of those, like, glass handheld ones, which can't be, what, more than, like, six ounces or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and he, he chugged it. He straight up just slammed it type of thing. And oh. we were like, we were like, wow, oh my God, that's funny, you know? And I was probably stoned as shit because that's all I did in my undergrad, um, study and smoke weed. Uh, but, you know, we were like, whoa, that's crazy, that type of thing, and just kind of forgot about it. Maybe 15, 20 minutes later, dude just straight passed out. Like, he had the hardest <laughs> sugar crash of his fucking life, you know? He was just asleep yeah. on the couch. <laughs> Um, we thought he was dead. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, that's you got to pour some water down his mouth or something. Uh, you got to got to thin that thin that out. Um, no, that's not surprising though that that had negative repercussions. He yeah. might have caught diabetes that day. Right, right. Yeah, caught the diabetes. Absolutely. Um, maple syrup. I uh, I don't like pancakes or waffles. I think I talked to you about this, Ben. I don't like grain, like straight up flour for breakfast. You know, I don't eat pancakes or waffles flour and sugar uh, okay. well yeah okay that's what most people like about it you know they're like oh, you know what i like i really like waffles and i go no i've seen you eat waffles there's a pound of powdered sugar on it and a bottle of maple syrup that's what you like you know you, yeah you like you like sugar it's the same people like... who go i really like salad and it's like no you like you know craft ranch dressing okay don't you're not uh, fooling anybody <laughs> lighthouse ranch but yeah um fair fair yeah. <laughs> no i i don't know i'm, I'm with you like i i don't like pancakes um i i do however like the middle bite that is so full of butter <laughs> with a little bit of syrup on it that i will tolerate the rest of the meal okay that's that's okay. what i like um that's fair no but I, i'm with you that's I, fair yeah. but i will say if anybody has never done this before no matter how you make bacon if you cook it in a frying pan or you're like me who cooks it in the oven 
because um, I don't like frying bacon. I like baking bacon because, I mean, just that makes, yeah. makes sense. Okay. Um, right before it's done, like in the last minute to two minutes of it cooking, each piece drizzle, drizzle maple syrup over it. It's the best. It's the only way I eat bacon anymore, period. It Damn. is so fucking good. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, and I, I'm about to to uh, probably reveal something about myself I shouldn't in Okay, public. I thought you were about to say I know what I'm doing for dinner tonight. <laughs> oh, no, no. Um, Ben's, I, like, Ben's like, hey, hey, cancel the DoorDash order. Get some bacon. <laughs> uh, I, I have, uh, in my older age, begun to like bacon uh, not crispy. I like oh. me some, some chewy bacon. Dude, my whole life I love chewy bacon. I... I like I like bacon so much that I'm gonna get. E- I, I like bacon so chewy I'm gonna get E. coli from it. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like I've just. I don't know. It something changed. Like I used to like my bacon to crunch, and then I it just one day I was I tried some some chewy bacon again, and I was like, this is good, dude. I'm so <laughs> I am Ever so seen. with you. I mean, like bacon comes out what like a like a you know dullish red when you get it from the package. You know the meat. The the fat mm. is white, of course, but like the actual you know meat part of it is is like a dullish red. Yeah. If that shit gets too brown, don't don't even come at me with it, bro. You know, <laughs> I I want that to look like barely rendered type of thing. Like, go, I want Gordon Ramsay to pop out of my oven and go, "It's fucking raw," as I shove it into my mouth and give him the middle finger type of thing. <laughs> oh, it's so good and with, oh. with with a little bit of maple syrup on it. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. speaking of all this food let's get to snacks and the restaurant up uh, ben i i have to imagine this was in your repertoire of what you want to talk about i know you've said before so i'm not blowing up your spot or anything that you uh, always come up with these on the fly type of thing um but i'm sure this one was in both of our heads It'll be, I think, the seventh or eighth time we've added it to the Cinemodities restaurant menu. Cigarettes. Cigarettes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my Lots. God. There's so much tobacco in this movie. There's even a scene where they talk about Germany or German tobacco versus Japanese tobacco. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. My cigarette's Japanese. You're probably not going to like them. Yeah. There, I mean, there's also the scene where what um, Hanjo and Jiro are in Germany and they're looking over the specs and Hanjo is upset because they're getting bad German or government specs or whatever or useless government specs. And he's yep. like, Jiro, give me a cigarette. And he's like, we're out. And Hanjo fucking pulls a butt out of the ashtray and lights it. And a huge plume of smoke comes out of his mouth. Like he just dragged it like he had... Like he had no other cigarettes, you know? Oh, my God. Um, I, I have to admit, uh, because, Ben, it's been many years since I've smoked tobacco. Um, it, this movie did not do me any favors in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I began smoking tobacco again after having quit for like five years. Um, and it's, uh, what can I say? It never lost its like alluring properties mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I just didn't give in for five years. And then yeah, yeah. suddenly I did. So. Yep, and what I like to say all the time, uh, it, uh, this, uh, schools in America, when Ben and I grew up in the 90s, when we were going to elementary school, they made a really big point about saying, smoking doesn't make you look cool, and that was the biggest lie school yeah. systems ever taught anybody. Absolutely. Smoking objectively makes you look cool. Okay, it's not good for you, it's not healthy, it's disgusting. If you're a huge smoker, it really does ruin your mouth, your teeth, your clothes. There's a slew of bad things about it, but nobody can say it doesn't make you look like a motherfucking G. <laughs> it does. It does do that. Uh, 
So we had to say cigarettes. Um, and that's absolutely the reason I smoke, uh, too, because yeah. I want to look cool. And then that's why you do it on your on your porch so your neighbors can see how cool you are, you know? That's that right. Type of thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to – I have two other things for the restaurant, but the next thing I wanted to mention is um, – we we are clearly in this infinite void of the Cinematis restaurant. We are clearly uh, constantly dealing with you know construction, uh, rehabilitation of spaces. You know, if anything gets damaged, we have to rebuild it. That type of thing. Maybe I'm um, updating or modernizing certain parts of the restaurant. I don't think we've ever talked about you know how do we move things around in our restaurant. No, we've talked about moving people and customers, but we never really talked about like how do we move like equipment. You about to pitch yaks to me? Uh, oxen, but yes, oxen, absolutely. Yeah. We nice. should have fucking oxen, full blown farm animals, just slowly dragging construction equipment throughout our restaurant. <laughs> It takes them two days. I think that would be really cool. And honestly, while while I think when I first wrote this down and thought about it, you know, I, it came across to me as a very joking thing. Um, wouldn't this be like a, a point of attraction, like a tourist attraction almost? Oh, like yeah. it'd be like people would be like, I want to go to the restaurant where I can see oxen dragging like a like I don't know a, a pallet of bricks or something like that, right? Definitely. Like people oh, yeah. would be so fucking into that, you know. You'd have kids coming up and be like, "Can I pet the oxen? Can I take pictures with them?" We'd of course have to train the oxen to just headbutt children and customers as soon as they see them, type of thing. Oh, and that's an experience you have to pay for, also. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, you want to get fucking wrecked by an ox? Yeah, dude. Seventy-five bucks right up front, you know, for children. Hundred fifty for adults. That's right. That's right. Senior citizen discount. You'll do it for free because you'll probably die. <laughs> <laughs> it's the euthanasia aspect of the Cinemais restaurant. Right. How do you want to go well, that, out? I want to be wrecked is... by an ox. <laughs> no, you just don't have to pay if you die. If if you survive, you still have oh, to pay. Oh, I like that. I like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to pay us and your medical bills. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. You don't... I have I have one other actual food thing for the restaurant. But what did you have, Ben? Anything for the uh, the snacks in the restaurant? Well, I mean, so this this movie is clearly about uh, mixtures of condiments and wind, and it, it I really think is. That we... I mean, that that kind of is the theme of this movie. I mean, we we should reiterate the fact that I mean, it, it's about mayo chup, it's about sriracha chup, it's about b- barbecue cranch. racha cranch French M- mustard ayonnaise. Uh, mustard ayonnaise. There's mackerel bones in there too, of course. You know, yeah. um, th- th- that's um, literally the theme of this movie. So I'm I'm glad you reiterated that because we should nail that down. I mean, yeah, if Hayao Miyazaki is about anything, it's about you know freestyling your condiments. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think <laughs> that we need. Uh, well, for one, we need to uh, sell a bunch of different kinds of mixed condiments, and and I think that. Uh, what we're going to do is we're just going to take our regular condiments and when they ask, we're going to mix them uh, very sloppily in the kitchen, like with a fork or something. Oh, OK. Um, OK. But stirred right on the plate. So it's not like a full mixture. Um, you <laughs> definitely still got to be able to see. The so it's just mixed condiments. like in the middle on the outskirts. You can see the individual colors oh, yeah. type. OK. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And we'll, we'll sell it like it's art. You know, it's like it's artsy. Of course. Yeah, like a yin yang of condiments. Um, <laughs> but but then we also like to, to incorporate the wind. Uh, there needs to be a place in the restaurant, and maybe it's over the entire seating area for the for the eating portion of the restaurant. I don't know, uh, but there needs to be a part of the restaurant where um, we occasionally we have a giant fan and we occasionally uh, pour condiments in front of it, and they just fly everywhere. That's wonderful. I mean, that's 
we, uh, we'll put that on the. Uh, not only should that be in, in the restaurant, we should put that on the um, the uh, Cinematis Movio Studio docket. That you know, maybe in yeah. some t- at some point in the movie about the man who sneezes at anthrax, uh, he gets yeah. into a condiment storm or something like that. You know, absolutely, yeah, a condiment <laughs> storm, totally. Um, we definitely, definitely need that. Um, and Remember that movie of the- came out a few years ago. Movie movie came out a few years ago called Geo Storm. Let's remake oh God, that, no. but called Condiment Storm. <laughs> nice. And in, instead of a giant fan, if we really, really want to keep it on theme, we could have like an airplane propeller. Oh, um, I like that. I like that. That's doing the, uh, you know, the the blowing, if you will. Um, and then we have to have uh, the occasional service announcement about okay. um, the requirements of maintaining, uh, you know, the what health, the food quality of your mustard anise and when, <laughs> when you need to remove it from your fridge. Um you ever been to a grocery store at like like when an hour turns over like when it goes from like 10:59 to 11 a.m. or something and the the PA will come on and it'll be like, you know, deli, take the hot holding temperatures for the hour or something like that, you know? Like we should have that in the restaurant be like, everybody, switch out your mayor stirred for mustard mayonnaise right now or something <laughs> like that. Like exactly, it is, yeah. hey, hey everybody, it's time to switch those condiments. Your mayo stirred just went bad. Mustard mayonnaise is now on the table. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I also want to add to your airplane thing um, in the Cinematis restaurant, because I think I'm very certain that somewhere we have like helicopters flying in the restaurant. Instead of chemtrails, we should have condiment trails. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking we definitely need that. I'm thinking we also like do we have one of those like uh, wind tunnels that you can pretend you're like... uh, free falling over oh, like, yeah, like the over contained away. skydiving thing yeah, yeah yeah skydiving yeah. yeah so we have that and then we also implement the condiments in there and maybe this is how <laughs> we mix the condiments uh that people order you know like for anything that's not just on your plate like if you order it on your plate you get us lazily mixing it with a fork yeah yeah but if we're using it in our in our recipes perhaps uh we just you know a couple times a day go and dump a tub of mayonnaise and a cup of tub of ketchup tub of ketchup in the uh in the skydiving machine and that's how we get uh mayo chub i love this discussion ben i hope i my sincere hope is that somebody listens to this episode as their introduction to cinematities i really hope it's this episode and i want them after maybe the hour or maybe 90 minute mark i want them to stick with it you know of course because they shouldn't give up nobody should give up us on any podcast after just a few minutes or anything like that I really hope this episode comes across to somebody out there as, like, they're having really deep conversations, but they might be the stupidest people. <laughs> like, what, how come they, they talk about how sad things are in society, but every five minutes it's punctuated by two different condiments mixed together? What is wrong with these people? <laughs> hopefully that they just think that's like a running gag throughout the whole podcast (laughs) we've done something special in this discussion (laughs) no Um, to continue on i the other food thing i had it it actually gets at what you were saying about the um the table side you know mixing the condiments or whatever my other thing was a a table side idea um when jiro is uh helping out nohoko and what her maid or her servant whatever that other woman is um during the earthquake sequence after the um, oh, the servant breaks her leg and he sets it with a slide rule, which is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. w- when they're in like the crowd of people and I think the aftershock is about to hit or just hit or something like that, he gives them water from the shirt he has 
And he says, like, my mother made this shirt, so it's clean. Please drink from it. I think that if anybody wants more water, because I'm pretty sure we do have water on the table like any regular restaurant. I'm sure there's some weird, goofy thing about it that I'm not remembering, you know. Um, but if anybody wants a refill on their water, the wait staff will come over with a wet shirt and squeeze it out into their glass. <laughs> um, I, I love it. I'm on board. I, I, I um, actually want to go even further. Maybe instead of them squeezing it into the glass, they squeeze it right into the customer's mouth. Even better. Perfect. My only concern is, can we afford the shirts? Um, my, <laughs> you know, this is a, this is a genuine board meeting for this restaurant, so we have to bring up the actual of concern. Course. No, um, I, I actually, while you were saying this, uh, you know, you said table side, and it. it reminded me of being at a mexican restaurant where like they'll come up and they'll make guacamole like right at your table side oh sure yeah um so now i'm thinking maybe instead of like the poorly mixed condiment already being on your plate uh somebody comes over and at your table in a bowl poorly mixes the condiment (laughs) and and then scoops like like no more than half of what they mixed out onto your plate and 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 the way they're taking the and the way they scoop it, like the spoon, they're gonna like whack it on your plate so hard that it splashes back and like gets on the customer's shirt and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I'm thinking that they're even probably gonna break some of the plates <laughs> <laughs> when like they're, they're gonna like you know break it to the point that there's like uh, what c- ceramic in your food. Very uh, uh, very upset. The the wait staff will be like, "Here's your French whack," you know that type <laughs> of thing. Oh, he wants ranch and French. Oh, Mister Fancy over here, you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, so I'm thinking, um, maybe that we have to backtrack on that one and and go to table, table side mixing. Um, well, and then you, they have to see how little of the condiment they're getting prepared compared to how much was mixed. Like I want like an abnormal amount of condiment mix, like where it's like, they're going to see that and be like, there's no way I could ever eat that much. And then, uh, the, (laughs) the person is going to give them like a tablespoon of it. Like they're gonna get like like no like a te- like like they're gonna get like the smallest amount like they're gonna pull out like an actual half a teaspoon measuring cup and just like that's what they get. I I like that. I like that. Okay, it's it's been it's been long enough that I'm finally doing it. I just Googled and I'm pulling up images, so I'm just looking at what we got in images. I Googled Heinz mixed condiments. I'm going with Heinz because that's the the big brand that type of thing. Just want to read some of these off because it's okay. Here we go. Uh, Cranch, of course, we mentioned that that's there. Ketchup and ranch. Um, Mayo chup exists, which we mentioned. Here's one I didn't know about. Kachili. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Ketchup and chili? Ketchup and chili sauce, I would imagine. I can't imagine you can get beans out of a condiment bottle, right? But like I said, I'm only looking at images. It's kachili. There is mayo Q. Which is mayo, mayo and barbecue sauce. Mayo must is the Heinz version of mayo and mustard. Um, oh my god, this is wonderful. This is absolute. I'm looking for any other ones. Um, apparently, Heinz sells something called saucy sauce. Oh. Uh, oh, oh, this one's no good. Buff Ranch. Like, go fuck yourself. Call it Buffalo Ranch, right? That exists already, you know? Um. Or Ranchalo, I mean. Ranchalo's a good one. I've heard that, absolutely. Um, uh, mayo Racha. Okay. That's, that's, getting, that's a little too many syllables, I think, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, oh, God, what is this one's in the background. I'm trying to read it. I think it says Honey Racha. 
I think well, Heinz barbecue sauce. No, I think it's honey and sriracha. Okay. Jesus Christ, there's way more of these than I thought there were gonna be. <laughs> yeah, this is this is getting intense. This is uh Kachili is my favorite one. Kachili <laughs> sounds like a parody of cars. You know how Lightning McQueen says Kachow? Like oh, yeah. there should be like a mad TV sketch where they make fun of cars and someone goes, Kachili, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Dude, okay, we need to we need to start coming up with our own um yeah, honey I found out a picture of honey racha. It's honey and sriracha. That is wild. Okay. Who wants this shit? Okay, this is this is Photoshop, but this is funny as shit. Oh my god, okay, I'm get there's two there's two photoshopped ones. One is Heinz Mayo Monster, which is monster energy drink mixed with mayo. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's also Mayorio, which is Oreo cream filling mixed with mayo. <laughs> Dude, I found I found the depths of the internet making fun of this now. I'm ready. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm glad that other people are are on on our uh, on our side about this. Um, apparently, oh, this looks real. Wasabioli. It's a combination of wasabi and aioli. Oh. From Heinz. That's weird. Tart. Tarchup? What the fuck is tarchup? Tartar sauce? Tartar sauce and ketchup? Isn't isn't that just like what that like the, the thing in shrimp cocktail? <laughs> doesn't that have like a name already? It doesn't need to be tarchup. No, it's tarchup. What the hell is? That's actually what it's called. Okay, hanch. 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 So something with an H and ranch. Hanch. Hot sauce and ranch is oh Heinz Hanch. Go fuck Hanch. yourself, Hanch. That's uh, it's hot sanch, if anything. Hot sanch, right? Hanch. Oh my god. Hanch is that's doesn't that's dude, two words. You dude, can't just be. We found the rabbit hole. <laughs> this is wild. Oh, oh, and then and then oh and then god. hold on. I have to. Okay, here we go. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm I'm reminded of a. Uh, an interview with Miley Cyrus where she is asked. So she talks about like seeing gophers and, and trying to like get down, like catch the gophers and like, you know, um, and like, so they, they're in their holes and she's like trying to, to dig them out. And then later in the interview, um, somebody says something about like digging through to China and and they're like, if somebody else is like, you can't dig through to China. And she's like, you can't catch the gophers either. (laughs) (laughs) It was like the funniest fucking thing I've ever heard her that's, say. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> oh my god, dude, this is a this is a rabbit hole forever. I think I found the weirdest one, Ben. This might be the weirdest one. Heinz yellow mustard. <laughs> oh god, it's wait. It's, you tell me they mixed yellow and mustard they together. Mixed, they mixed a color with a condiment. <laughs> Whoa. That's out of this world. Oh my god! Um, yeah, this is this is wild. Uh, this is a yeah. Really I, cool. I saw like five of them at Target, and I was like, "That's too many." And now I know that there's like at least twice as many exactly. As and uh, th- I just searched Heinz. Imagine all the other brands we didn't think of, you know, and um, what they're fucking. Oh my god! They're going to start. What, what's what? What's another brand? Hellman's? Like Hellman's? Sure, I, sure. Oh, they're going to be like Heinelmans. Like they're going to start mixing the company. <laughs> Hi, Nelman's Mayo Must. 
Dude, that that's the point where it gets to one of my favorite jokes is that Alliance. marketing will eventually become the tagline for a sauce will be just put it in your mouth, you fat fuck, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. It'll be like Heinz, Hein Elman's Cranch, eat it. Bitch, you know something like that, you know. <laughs> and and then the next commercial is just like Hellmines, uh, what's ranch up, <laughs> fucking, fucking eat it still. Okay, okay, it. okay. Breaking news. Breaking news. I had to fucking see what this was. Clearly, we've talked about it already, and it exists. Mayo chup. Heinz mayo chup is a mixture of mayo and ketchup. Okay, I mentioned earlier they sell something. Heinz sells something called saucy sauce. While we were just talking, I was like, well, okay, I've exhausted all these pictures. What's saucy sauce? Saucy sauce is literally mayo and ketchup. They're selling the same thing under two different names. Dude. Wow. Burn it all down. Do you, you think it's a different ratio? Burn it all. I, I mean, honestly, if you had to ask me, saucy sauce is in the yogurt aisle and mayo chup is in the condiment aisle. Okay? That's what I'm saying. Which, I'm sticking which to it. Which one of them is in the ice cream aisle? That's, <laughs> that's the one I want. That's the mayorio. <laughs> oh, yes, ice cream oh my god what a great fucking rabbit hole to go down and how stupid the fucking world is man um everything's sad everything's very sad did you have anything else for the restaurant ben <laughs> um you know i think i think i've done enough in this meeting sure, uh, sure. i i think that i i, I do want to say you know as always i appreciate the back and forth and how we can grow our ideas from what they were individually to something Absolutely. better yep. uh, by, by our communication. Uh, and I think, I think that the uh, Maya mustard Nene's fan, uh, <laughs> I think that really highlights that. And I, you know, I, I can't wait to see it in action. I also like that in this board meeting, you know, we um, looked at our competitors and saw what we need to uh, improve upon for sure. That's right. Uh, we went a little above and beyond for you in the good Christian cinema audience. Well, with all that being said, we're in the middle, you know, uh, of our adult animation series. Um, tune in next week. We will be covering uh, Stop Motion, the uh, the one stop motion movie we will be discussing in this series. Um, Anomalisa, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I will, I'm very excited. I'm going to be watching uh, and commenting on, of course, uh, the version that has commentary, which I've never seen before. I'm going to watch it for that episode uh, to give a lot of insight. It's one of those movies that I own on Blu-ray, just like Searching. So tune in for that. And speaking of Searching and all these other movies that we talked about throughout this discussion uh, that we've guided our listeners into, if you like what you heard, if you liked Ben and I ranting about all these different things, maybe not so much the restaurant part, but all the um, intellectual thoughts that are punctuated with um, uh, condiment mixes, as we said, um, definitely check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash cinemodities. If you want to support the podcast uh, by giving us five bucks a month or more to get uh, different access uh, to give us requests or to oh. get other things, that's where to do it. Ben, yeah, what do you got about the Patreon? Uh Definitely coming soon um, with every uh, tier above the $10 mark, there will be a free bottle of Cinnamuster Nayonese. <laughs> Cinnamuster. <laughs> Dude, okay. That Cinnamayo? Cinnachup? What is it? It's ketchup mixed with cinnamonities. What does that mean? You got to pay <laughs> no, to find out. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, and it might, it might also involve cinnamon because that's already a food. Um, Could you? Oh my god! Could you imagine cinnamon and ketchup mixed together? That literally makes me want to puke. I think. Oh, dude! Did I ever tell you about the the time that I went to a Mexican restaurant and I ordered some enchiladas and they came out and I was like, "These don't taste right," and uh, and I 
I called the waiter over and I was like, dude, I'm pretty sure that they uh, that they put cinnamon instead of cumin oh, in this. Oh, that's <laughs> and, so and he, gross. <laughs> and he went back and like he found out that I was right. And uh, and they had to, they had to throw out that whole batch of sauce. Oh my god, um, dude, dude, that's that's fucked up. That's like using um sugar instead of salt, you know? Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's god. It, uh, was, it makes me it think was... of one time back in New York years ago. This had to be like twenty two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I went to a Sonic, and I ordered um onion rings because I'm like I love onion rings. A huge O ring fan, you know. The food, yeah. not the um, not the thing that goes on, uh, not the thing that caused the Challenger disaster. Those are bad O rings. Um, but that was a bad O ring. They, they were really bad O rings. Uh, ask Richard Feynman, you know. <laughs> um, but I ordered onion rings, and they were disgusting. The batter that they used to coat the onion rings was like cake batter. Like they were sweet, oh. and like on, like the whole point of onion rings is that the batter is crispy and you know a little like fried food like bitter. Yeah. But the onion is the sweet part, and it was like yeah. I was biting into just like an onion cake, and that is it was so oh. gross, you know. Oh God. Never got onion rings from Sonic again. And I've been to Sonic, you know, because, I mean, I think, Ben, you and I, what, the cheap corn dog days, we did that back in Athens, you know? <laughs> I actually, um, I don't mind Sonic onion rings. You might have had a really... I think that might have been it. It might have just been they fucked it up, like with you and the uh, cinnamon and the cumin. They, this this Sonic in New York might have just, you know, fucked things up. Oh. And, you, and probably use sugar instead of salt, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably. Can you imagine, like, the one person who was like, this is the first time I'm ever trying onion rings? And then oh. they were like, this is what onion rings are supposed to taste like, and I love them. And then for the rest of their life, they're disappointed. God, um, God, we got to put that person down. <laughs> uh, we'll uh, be doing them a favor. Love onion rings. I, I, I love making my own onion rings. I really do. I, sure. I have a deep yeah. fry. I love making onion rings. Full like show. A, like Absolutely. a beer batter. Like a, do, you, do you like egg yolk and then like pat bread them, or do you actually put them in like a batter? I usually make the batter for onion rings. Yeah, that, that's the that's best so way to get it to stick to the onion, you know? Otherwise, you're just making kind of like onion straws. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, deep fryer is great. If anybody does not have a deep fryer, get it. Um, I mean, I bought a deep fryer to make scotch eggs, and I make those very regularly, and um, they're fucking delicious. If anybody does not know what a scotch egg is, or also a lion's head meatball, as is known in the UK, um, it is a hard-boiled egg wrapped in sausage and then breaded and fried. <laughs> It is fucking delicious. I I think okay. Um, getting back on track, then. <laughs> now we're just both hungry. I think at this point. Um, yeah, no, I'm probably gonna eat after this. I I, I think I'm gonna as well. Um, uh, to get us back on track, we mentioned the Patreon. Um, I should also mention if you want to yell at us about our decision to mix condiments uh, in general or the existence of mixed condiments, cinemodies at gmail.com. As always, check out the Cinemodies subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash cinemodities for more information about the show and to post things and ask questions uh, because I check it pretty regularly, uh, just like our email, and I get back to our fans. Um, ben! When you are not haphazardly creating toxic poisons because you are freestyling condiments, uh, where can people find you? <laughs> uh, you can always find me on the Play Store where you can find either my uh, Dice Roller app or my Magic the, Gather, uh, Magic the Gathering Life yes. Counting app, which is perfect for Commander, especially partner Commanders, uh, because pretty much no other app does it. Um, mine actually tracks their Commander damage separately. Uh, and you... <laughs> Does it I have a mayo-stirred mode, though? I have to um, ask. <laughs> it, it, you can mix whatever two things together you want. 
uh, in the app. It is very customizable. Okay. Uh, but there are no condiments in the app at all, I don't think. Okay, so, okay. I think uh, it would be cool if you if you added the ability to change, like, the color palette of... You know how, like, some apps have, like, light mode, dark mode? Um, mm. There's some apps that you can be like, oh, I want to change the color of the background and change the color of the text. You yeah. should have presets where it's like, oh, what colors do you want? This is the mayo-stirred color. It's white and yellow. This is, like, mayo chup. It's white and red, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> I'm That's here for very niche, but uh, we'll see if uh, Ben wants to include that addition. <laughs> if if anybody joins the uh, the Cinemodities Patreon at uh, what probably what's below our two hundred dollar tier one one hundred I think. <laughs> okay, if anybody joins at that tier, I will add that to the app. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. Um, uh, I I would I would we would greatly appreciate that for sure. <laughs> um, but you have to do it for two months. I'm not adding. Themes that's fair that's fair yep yeah gotta, gotta be committed of course of that's course. right um all right well with that being said uh, i think the last thing is to talk about how do we end this episode and i actually want to go out on a little bit of a limb here i want to do something a little different i don't do this often um but the music you want to this... write the song for the commercial for all of our mixed condiments and play that in reverse well that actually might be the actual best idea i've ever heard uh, to end the episode um that that okay that's we got we got that in there let me also put in i don't want to use a song or a uh, it's all score there's no real song from this movie it's all you know soundtrack stuff score stuff um while it is fantastic it's all instrumental i don't think it would really sound a lot different in reverse that type of thing i actually want to play a song by King Crimson in reverse, the song I Talk to the Wind, which is one of my favorite King Crimson songs, and uh, I figured it had the wind motif. So um, how about this, Ben? If uh, I do have the time while editing this to write a jingle for a commercial, and uh, guess what? I probably won't have time to do that. I'll put that in reverse, but if not, we'll put I Talk to the Wind by King Crimson in reverse. What do you think? I, uh, can you find another song that, that has a rising motif and then mix those two together and then play that in reverse? Ooh, okay. We like, do have to mix something, right? I talk we, to the wind while it rises. We we have set it up so much in this episode that our end song has to be something mixed, right? Definitely. Okay. You're, yeah, you're right there. Okay. Oh, uh, God. Uh, find, uh, find a song about rising. Play any song by Rise Against. You know? I... It's, I I, I'm also thinking we mixed uh, I Talk to the Wind with Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot. That's another thing I thought of. Because <laughs> that's also an egregious combination of, you know, one of the most technically, like, proficient progressive rock bands of all time. They've, King Crimson's been around since the 50s. With, and then I Talk to the Wind. W- yeah, with Baby totally. Got Back, you know, that, no, that's no, no, not, no. A, like, that, a, a good combination. The first combination. thing you described is Baby Got Back. That's... Oh, oh, yes, of course, Sir Mix-a-Lot. I mean, everybody knows yeah. Um, uh, yeah. the very famous story. Sir Mix-a-Lot performed Baby Got Back, and that's what um, got Jimi Hendrix into playing the guitar. Of course, everybody knows that story. It's actually <laughs> also what, what brought us out of, uh, or I'm sorry, what brought us into World War II. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot was like, I like big butts, but I don't want them to be used for war. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I hope somebody hears this and go, how can they make such good points but be so stupid? <laughs> you know, I also wonder that. Hey, it's what we live with, right? It, 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 our ability to just kind of off the cuff say a bunch of dumb shit, you know, that's that's <laughs> talent in and of its own, I think. You're damn right it is. Well, with that being said, Ben, I think we've gone long enough. I uh, have to go die of tuberculosis. Okay, thank you. All right, cool. You got like two years, I think.
Yes. Uh-huh.